0: Blank Jack with Griffin and David. Blank Jack with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Jack.
1: What did you do? Wake up this morning and say, today I'm going to ruin a podcast. It's great. Man's life. That's great. That's the, li- the lines of man's life. I feel like I always struggle with Douglas. I rarely try it. I feel like I... I every time I go, it can't be that hard. I just clench my jaw, right? And I'll sound like Michael yeah. Douglas.
0: It doesn't work. I, I, there, I definitely do not have a Douglas. I would not this know where to CNN. begin with a Douglas. No,
1: I get to... Is he CNN or what? He's one of the news channels now, right? He's not CNN. Surely isn't CNN James Earl Jones or did they change it? He's NBC Nightly News, I think.
0: Really? He is. You're right. I had no idea.
1: Yes, Michael Douglas is the voice of the NBC Nightly News. All right. Yeah. Cool. It's just weird because every time they will start a NBC News broadcast, uh, you know, previously with that bastion of honesty and integrity, Brian Williams. It'd be very weird to have it intro by the man who was most known for being a horned up sleazebag in 90s
0: erotic thrillers. <laughs> Guys, I can't stop yeah. fucking. I'm Michael Douglas. <laughs> Welcome to the news. Is this one of his most, like ostensibly charming, like, you know, leading man roles. And even in this, he's yeah. uh, kind of scummy. Kind of a can- like, kind of scummy. But
2: <laughs>
1: that's what's <laughs> wild about this is like, this was sort of his breakthrough as a movie star. He's playing like a charming cad. And then after this, he just becomes like the, the American id of the eighties and nineties. He just becomes like, everyone's like coked up nightmare of like, what if I just
0: gave in to all of my worst desires I forgot the American president, where he's playing like a very idealized and like lovely figure. I forgot right. that he I guess does that's e- the other eventually. Big yeah, right. He does eventually start to do sweeter, but like, yeah. Post of planting it's, the seeds here, though, isn't he? I mean, totally his yeah.
2: first into Kathleen Turner's crotch is kind of yes. you know planting a flag. This
1: feels like him figuring
0: it out. He's like, go further, more of mm-hmm. this. Sleep <laughs> I was, with I was way too tame, Wall yeah. Street. Uh, Black Rain, War of the Roses, Basic Instinct, Falling Down Disclosure. That's like his run right. after this. Right. Like American now president I, is him being like, I got to take my foot off the gas. Like, you know, come on. Yes.
1: Because after this, he just is like, I know exactly who I am as a movie star and I'm going to ride this all the way to the bank. And America was like, we love it. Despite the fact that he almost <laughs> yeah. always plays someone unlikable. It's He has a wild career. And we talked about this when we did Basic Instinct, but he's, he's kind of anomalous in a bunch of ways, but we'll, we'll dig into this more. I feel like there's a lot of interest in career context in this movie, which is one of the things we like to talk about because we are hashtag the two friends. We are connoisseurs of context. And this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David.
0: And I love it. I love it. David, I frankly love it. You love Romancing the Stone or you love the podcast?
1: Oh, the podcast. I love that you're David. I'm being positive. Oh, yeah, I love that yeah, you're David.
0: That's great. I love that you love that I'm David. I love that you're Griffin. Well,
1: that means the world to me. And <laughs> uh, this is a miniseries. It's a podcast. I'm sorry. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers, given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. It's a miniseries on the films of Robert Zemeckis. It's called Podcast Away, despite many people begging for it to be called podcasting. Pod, podmancing the cast. That's the thing yeah. that people
0: wanted. <laughs> okay. I mean, no. Podcast because away is what it's you, called. You didn't hear cast. how
1: well it rolled off my tongue, Podmancing the cast? Yeah, get out of here. People want to hear that for 22 consecutive weeks. Um, but this is, this is kind of what we like to call the guarantor. Sometimes you get a movie and a career that gives them the turnkey that lets them do what they want to do. And this is like a guarantor, and then he follows this up with like a double guarantor that essentially leaves him open to make whatever he wants for the rest of time. I mean, Zemeckis is in this rarefied air. I feel like we've covered a couple other people like this. Cameron, Lucas, Spielberg, Nolan, where it's like, Mm -hmm. guess what? You get to make whatever you want for the rest of time. You did it enough times that you can have seven flops in a row and we'll still go like, but what if this one's another back to the future? Like right. every time Hollywood's like, it, but it might be, it might be.
0: Yeah, maybe he should like adapt the documentary about the mentally ill guy, you know, with the the soldier figurines and that, that'll be a Christmas hit. What an incredible thing to look forward to. Um, but joining us
1: on the show, this is very exciting. We have two friends who also host a movie podcast
0: hey hey Hey, guys
1: what am i seeing double here six male friend movie (laughs) podcast hosts no Uh, (laughs) it's only four it's only four ladies and gentlemen joining us from the film spotting podcast the long-running legendary film spotting podcast adam campener josh larson live from chicago how are you guys doing doing great
2: thanks for having us on this oh, will be fun. Please. I'm really looking forward to this. I, I was saying to Adam when we were recording earlier today, we made it through Tenet. We made it through, I'm thinking of ending things. And mm. then I got to sit down after both of those and just enjoy Romancing the Stone. So came at just the right time.
0: Romancing the Stone is an, a breezier watch than either of those movies. for, <laughs> slightly, for sure. Slightly. Yeah.
2: I'll, I'll say this. We do. And this is,
1: I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this about... Me saying, I'll say this. I say, I'll say this too much. But here's the thing I want to say. We do a March Madness competition every year that I will admit, uh, fully ripped off from you guys. That was the (laughs) idea of just like, oh, you can do March Madness with things that aren't sports. Mm. And the way that you guys did it and involved your fan base, now excited people got over it, uh, inspired me. I went to David. I said, here's my idea. We do that, but we add the stakes of whoever wins our March Madness competition, we cover. Mm. So it's like we're handing too much control over to our listeners um, and saying, like, here's 32 directors in a bracket. You pick who we're going to cover a couple months from now. And Zemeckis is the guy who was picked uh, in March when the world was going upside down, Mm -hmm. when no one knew how long this was going to last, if it was just going to be two weeks staying at home. I'm pretty grateful that Zemeckis won. Like, looking back at some of the other people who were on the bracket... Some of them might be a slog to talk about now in an alternate reality, you know, Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, and and much like you guys
1: talking about like watching Romancing the Stone being a nice light thing. I did feel that appreciation when I was watching this the other night of like, I'm glad this is what I have to watch.
2: Yeah, it was fun. I wish I was doing this deep dive that you guys are doing because he's someone I instinctually defend, but I haven't gone back and rewatched a lot of stuff beyond the things I watched a million times as a kid. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my affection for him is born out of uh, my childhood experience with him. And that carried over even to things like What Lies Beneath, which I think I love more than Almost anyone. Um, But I don't know if a lot of that stuff would hold up uh, on a revisit. So, yeah, listening along will be fun. And I'll be a little bit jealous that you guys get to do this.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, three movies in, I'll say, so far, so good for for Bobby Z. Obviously. He comes out of the gate strong. Right. we We haven't gotten to the difficult movies yet. But, like, you know. I want to hold your hand use cars. Like, these are not movies people watch a lot. These are not movies that are in the public lexicon. And uh, I had a great time with both of them.
1: Uh, yeah. Have have either of you guys rewatched either of those films at any point in the last 10 years or so?
3: Very sadly, both are blind spots for me. I have a lot wow. of Zemeckis blind spots. Mm-hmm. I really do. So maybe maybe I should just get off the Zoom right now. <laughs> no, I, don't know. I was,
0: I no, was no, no, similar no. to you. No. I was similar to you. Yeah.
1: I hadn't seen either. I think maybe I saw used cars sort of like half watched it on cable. I want to hold
2: your hand. I'd certainly never seen. And they're both such wonderful movies. Yeah, I've got about five Zemeckis spots, and those are two of them. So, yeah, for me, it started with Romancing the Stone, probably Mm -hmm. at the time of its its release. You know, I probably did see that in theaters when it first came out. Um, And, you know, we'll get into it, I'm sure. But given my love already at that time for Raiders, and Indiana mm-hmm. Jones in general, I was all on board. And then, you know, as as you were saying, David, to then do Back to the Future and, <laughs> you know, to make a masterpiece at that point um, is uh, – it just – it was great for me at that age when I saw it then. And then that's one that just holds up, absolutely. I, I saw
1: yes. there was a, a, a quote from um, a Paul Schrader interview that was circulating on Twitter the other night about this idea that, like, critics will buy stock in a filmmaker. Like, when they feel like they sort of discovered someone, when, when a director, a young director has their turnkey movie and it feels like, oh, I'm calling it now, this is a filmmaker who's going to stick around, that they sort of buy stock in that person. And then for the rest of your life, you're sort of <laughs> trying to defend your purchase of that stock. So when they have a hit that everyone agrees upon, you're just like, I'm in the money. Let me laugh all the way to the bank. And when they don't, you really got to try to like fight your hardest to find well. But if you look at it through this prism, it's interesting and this and that. And Zemeckis, I think, is very much one of those guys where like he was so undeniably strong at the beginning that I don't think it's exclusive to you guys, I feel like we feel this way. I feel like a lot of people feel this way. And it's one of the reasons why he keeps on getting the chance to make whatever he wants is people are just like, there has to
2: be like mm-hmm. that same guy still there who can bat at that level, right? Yeah. You don't want to give up on him, And and I think that happens a couple of ways. It happens nostalgically. So that's the Zemeckis case for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also happen. Adam, I think, I don't know if you have this, but I feel like sometimes I have this with our golden brick Winners, so an award we give every year is to an up and coming filmmaker right. who's made maybe their second film, uh, unknown to us, um, but we're just really impressed with the emerging talent, and so we'll give them this award. And then I, we're we're buying stock, right? So it's yeah. very hard every film that that filmmaker makes going forward. And you know, this has been an award how many years now, Adam? Twelve, thirteen? I mean, yeah. it was within the first couple of years of this show. So a lot of these early winners, I feel like we still have stock in and you're rooting. Are we rooting for them a little bit extra when they have a new film? Absolutely. Come out? Absolutely. I'll admit it.
1: Right. And the namesake of that award on your show is brick and Ryan Johnson and mm-hmm. totally panned out in the way that you guys like sort of called he would, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it, it doesn't work out that way. Every time you want them to sort of constantly be there. And yeah. if, if someone like Zemeckis comes out of the gate and it, like pretty much the first like six or seven are all really strong, it's hard to ever
0: totally divest yourself of that stock. You Well, the you other bought. he, mm-hmm. he I and mean, we'll talk about this as we go forward, but like if you're a Spielberg or whatever, like Spielberg shifts from like being the you know the the reinventing genre movies into blockbuster movies mm-hmm. into like turning into a prestige director hunting for an oscar into like sort of the post schindler's list stuff that we covered where it's like you know more darker tinged movies like you know like he shifts like i feel like zemeckis struggled with the shift post forest gump well talk, i mean and i like a lot of those movies post forest gump i do too but yeah but like he it it does kind of feel like the, the Oscar broke him in a weird way. I don't know. The shifts are
1: weird, and it's also this thing we've talked about where he's this weird case, and Jonathan Demi, who we covered last year as our March Madness winner, is another case of this where it's like a guy who has this major, massive, cultural-defining blockbuster box office hit that also sweeps the Oscars is seen as the most Oscary movie. They get pegged as an Oscar-y director and they literally never get an Oscar nomination ever again. You know, it's, it's like, Zemeckis' mm-hmm. Oscar career is pretty much done after Forrest Gump, even though I feel like he's thought of an oscar filmmaker and every time he has a new movie, people question that. But he's also not really making major box office plays, blockbuster plays in the way that he used to it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like he's trying to be as populist as he used to. He is in kind of a weird space in the second half of his career.
3: Where do you guys think maybe you'll get into this but where do you feel he stands right now when people talk about I suppose bankable directors but also great directors. Because he's a name that I I don't feel like comes up a whole lot and in fact Josh referenced the new Charlie Kaufman movie I'm thinking of ending things, which, if you've seen it, have you guys talked about this at all? How it. Uh, we, well, it I don't think we've seen the movie it,
0: it It does it, have a Zemeckis zinger, this movie, but apparently that was run by Zemeckis. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, right.
2: No kidding. Because it's a total shot, is
3: how I took it. It's hard not to see it that way, which, if he was on board with it, then
0: the guy's got a great sense of humor. Yeah. Right. Respect to Zemeckis for uh, agreeing to be uh, razzed. I think mm-hmm. Kaufman was originally going to work with him. I think Chaos Walking was originally a Zemeckis project. Hmm. And Kaufman wrote at least an early, you know, he worked on that movie. And so maybe they had, maybe that's part of it. They had some connection. But uh, it's it's interesting because in the movie, he's kind of being mocked as a. What you're talking about, Griffin, an Oscar-y guy, yeah, like whatever, a, a maker of formulaic Hollywood pap, which like yeah, that's how is I took not it. really like,
2: romantic comedy hack,
0: yeah, right. which is not really what Zemeckis is now. Now Zemeckis, it's sort of like he's this guy who takes a lot of money from studios to make very strange passion projects that are presented commercially but are clearly uncommercial. You know, like, you know, the the walk, Allied, Welcome to Marwen. I mean, Allied is a little more conventional, but you know what I mean? It's conventional for a movie from the 1950s. Like, it's
1: conventional in a near pastiche kind of way, which I love Allied, and we will get to that episode in which you and I fight about Allied. But, like, Allied's the most conventional of those three, and yet it's very, I think, pointedly trying to, like, represent a very out-of-vogue style of filmmaking. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's him being like, hey,
2: Hollywood, why don't you make this kind of movie? Everything he's done, you know, really almost since, what, Cast Away, when you hear even the idea, maybe not flight, yes. but you you kind of cock your head a little bit. It's like, what? Huh? Zemeckis what? is doing that? Yeah, but it's gotten to a point. those people in that style? Yeah, Beowulf, Polar Express.
0: Right. When he does Flight, you're like... Is there something else with this movie? Because yes. this almost seems too conventional for him. <laughs> a little like, straightforward. He, you're telling me he just like kind of like made a movie with a movie star that's like pretty good and is going to get some Oscar nominations. Like uh, I don't understand. Like wh- what did Zemeckis see in this? No, it's also
1: like Flight is even more bizarre because it comes out of ten years of him committing himself exclusively to one technical breakthrough essentially like that's the other bizarre thing with him where it's just like at at not his peak but at a very high point in his career coming off of uh what lies beneath and castaway which are both big hits he just doubles down and goes like here's a big shift i'm only about motion capture Mm. and and i feel like in those Days was talking as if he might only make motion capture movies for the rest of his career. I mean, it felt like when Flight was announced, not only did it seem like a weird match for him in terms of material, but it also was like, oh, wow, he's actually going to make a live action movie again. Yeah. And not only that, but it's an R-rated movie, which he's only done one other time in his entire career. He's
0: odd. Is is What Lies Beneath, PG-13, did he sneak that? I think it is. I
1: believe Used Cars and Flight are the only two
0: R-rated movies he's ever made. It is, it is. Um, What Lies Beneath is the closest where you're like, that's barely a a PG-13. That's sort of like on the line. Yeah.
2: Well, and he's, because he's doing Hitchcock there, right? So I don't think he'd want to go graphic because it's it's all the insinuation. Yeah, totally. But I mean, to get back to your question, Adam,
1: I feel like he was... You guys have talked about this on your show many times, but but the sort of weird um, tale on the cultural response to Forrest Gump and how wildly that has changed, you know, over the years. And I feel like uh, the perception of that movie becomes more and more negative every passing year. And 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 then it gets sort of associated with like, oh, people who like Forrest Gump, that's treacle, that's comfort food, that's for like saps and sentimentalists. It, you know, the kind of like dismissive way that the Kaufman movie might frame him. Um, so it's like that's his biggest movie at box office, his Oscar winner, all of that. He still has that shine when he's making his next couple of films, Contact What Lies Beneath, Castaway. But I feel like. Shortly after that, when he's going into motion capture land, maybe more heightened circles of film criticism and appreciation are starting to really sour on him retroactively. I think in a way that also happened to Spielberg, where it's just like, oh, Spielberg, it's all the pap, it's all the this, it's small C, it's whatever. And he moves into this really weird area. I don't feel like there was a lot of excitement around him when he started doing live action again. And he felt like the kind of guy where we were like coin toss onto whether we should even include him on a March Madness bracket, um, whether or not he'd have any supporters. And it was very bizarre as we watched the arc of voting over the weeks that he was being treated like he was this like outsider pick. Hmm. Like people were really into him because our previous two winners were Nancy Myers and Jonathan Demi, who were both big filmmakers Well, slightly off from the types of filmmakers we cover. We hadn't covered someone who worked that much in romantic comedies before at that sort of studio level. Uh, uh, Demi is so eccentric in what he does. Uh, His career is so spread out. And Zemeckis was being treated the same kind of way when we'd see people tweeting about him. And I think Marwin is almost the one that shifted it. Not in a positive way, but people were just like, there's so much weird stuff going on with this movie that maybe it's time we reckon with Robert Zemeckis again because it's very clear this guy is never boring. Even when he's right. bad, mm-hmm. he's never boring. He's at such a high level of technical proficiency, and it you still totally can't figure out what's going on in his
2: head. He, well, he hasn't gotten stale. He's he's somewhat been yeah. forgotten. Dis, it's weird. He's been forgotten despite the fact that he hasn't really gotten stale, but it's almost like his weirdness has. And I haven't seen all of those. I didn't even see Welcome to Marwin. I think the last one I saw was um, Allied, which for the record, I liked quite a bit. Um, But yeah, now now it's kind of uh, like we've just set him aside. He's too weird, but not in an artistically interesting way. I think it has to do with the technology. You know, he's he's too invested in the technology that scene still as in a separate category than artistry, even though it shouldn't be. And so he's just not it's it's like we don't really have to wrestle with him.
0: He's a boomer like he's the this is the Forrest Gump thing, right? It's like he got tagged Mm -hmm. as like King Boomer. And. It's it's funny to think about, uh, obviously, because something like Welcome to Marwin, it's not like you can watch that and be like, "Oh, these boomers always," you know, they're always foot fetishists who have like action figure communities that that play out psychodramas in their head. You guys got to get Welcome to Marwin as you it's really, a side I really, Adam, Josh. I, you I must highly be welcome. recommend Welcome to Marwin. <laughs> okay. <Yes>. It is <laughs> it is a like movie it. to reckon with. <laughs> it is unlike anything else. Seeing the doc isn't
3: enough. I can't just claim that I've seen the doc I love and the like doc. it. Doc's yeah. one of
1: my favorite movies the last 20 the doc years. Doc is it's not good. enough. You They're must right. be welcomed. Really?
3: Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, welcome to Marmon is a whole
3: other thing. Yes. Don't you think that part of it is, and I think I'm guilty of it. Josh would probably admit he's guilty of it. We probably don't see him through a no tourist lens, right? No. Because of that technical proficiency, because yeah. of the way he works in so many different styles. Unlike so many other filmmakers, a Christopher Nolan would certainly be one. We see those movies. We see all the recurring themes and motifs and stylistic choices. And right or wrong, we think we know who Christopher Nolan is. We think we have some sense of him as as a human being and as an artist. And I have no idea what Robert Zemeckis really cares about or what keeps him awake at night. Uh, from the movies i've seen now i probably have not done i'll admit i've not done a deep enough dive but i think he doesn't easily fit into that sort of a tourist package
0: and so we do overlook him
1: i agree he with does, that i was about I, I to say right he stopped
0: writing but he does still write like he's credited on he marwin on the walk on the a christmas carol like you know he does still have screenwriting still credits write. obviously he stops writing yeah,
1: he, with gail who that was so key to his sensibility at the beginning. But I do think, yes, he's not seen as notorious, but he's also not seen as like an anonymous craftsman. I agree with you that I think there's something kind of inscrutable about him, even though there are things like his boomer tendencies, his obsession with technology. There are things you can latch on to, but you don't feel like you can totally get him in the same way that Nolan, despite being a guy who doesn't volunteer a lot of information about his personal life, you watch those movies and you're like, I know everything going on in this guy's head. <laughs> like, he's exactly. not telling me this, <laughs> but he keeps on coming back to the same four or five things over and over again. They're so clear. His sensibilities are so unified. His movies look the same. They sound the same. They have the same fears. Uh, and and the zagging of Zemeckis is odd, but then he also doesn't feel like this kind of just journeyman. He doesn't feel like he's just sort of anonymously latching on to whatever you know is thrown in front of him. He's he's kind of a contradiction in that sense. And this movie is interesting because this is his least personal film, uh, certainly in the first half of his career. Right. It's, this uh, is I mean, a to just job. Ch- yeah. Yeah. Right. To back up and give a little uh, uh, context, which we set up a lot of this in the last two episodes. But he and Bob Gale were the Wonderkins out of film school. Spielberg meets them when he goes as a lecturing guest speaker for Sugarland Express. So they meet Spielberg right before he becomes Spielberg. They get in at just the right time. He likes their energy and their enthusiasm. They have similar reference bases. He kind of takes them under his wing. Then he makes Jaws. And now he's the hottest guy in Hollywood. And he says to everyone, these two guys are the next big thing. They're a writing team. This one's the director. I'm putting my money on them. So he is responsible for getting their first two movies off the ground, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and uh, used cars. Um, and both of them flop. They're both well-reviewed. They're well-liked at studios. They have a good reputation, but the movies are flops. And they're sort of in a like two-strikes, bottom-of-the-ninth situation. And their big passion project, which they had been working on for a long time, was Back to the Future. they just been honing that script, refining it, refining it, tightening it, Wanting to make it, and uh, Spielberg says, "I think this is a great script. I'll produce this. I'll try to get this set up for you guys tomorrow." And Zemeckis says to him, "In I mean, really a career defining move. Uh, it shows a lot of foresight for someone who I think was 28 at the time." That was the other thing. He he made his first film when he was like 23. Like he had had this sort of between those two films he directed in 1941. Uh, which Spielberg directed, but he and Gale wrote and was a big flop. People were like, these are just Spielberg's cronies. And Zemeckis said, I think if you produce another film of mine uh, and it flops, I'm done. I'm completely cooked. I will never be able to shake the reputation that I'm just your friend who's getting movies made because his buddy is the most successful guy in Hollywood. I need to do something on my own I can't do Back to the Future. I can't risk it with one of my personal projects. The next halfway decent script I find I'm taking because I just need to get something that like a studio is com- confident about with good people attached and just make it as cleanly as possible and try to get a hit so I can plant my own two legs as a filmmaker on the ground. And that script was Cocoon. He spent two years developing Cocoon and very shortly i think in the later stages of pre-production uh they welched they just went like i don't know this guy's got two flops in a row maybe not he started pushing back with exacting notes on certain things and they just dropped him and they hired ron howard who seemed like safer and more controllable so now he's like really down in the dumps he gets the romancing the stone script and he goes yeah sure and as much as he sort of he explains it as if it was that sort of thoughtless, that he was like, I read it, it was good, I said yes. I-, I wasn't looking for something to really speak to me, I just needed a script that felt like this is workable, I know how to do this, I'll go make this, I'll get it in on time and under budget, and hopefully I'll have a hit, which will help me make Back to the Future.
0: And it's such a classic Hollywood story, like Diane Thomas, but she's like a waitress- she writes yes. the script. It's her first script. Her agent sells it like immediately. Every studio immediately is like, We're, we, we want this. Like we have a pair in mind, you know, like it, it was it was like just so simple. And there's some weird uh, apocryphal possibly story that she like pitched the story to Michael Douglas when he was a customer once. But maybe that's made up. Right, I was
1: watching the special features, which are not super thorough, but there's some good interviews with with Douglas in particular uh, because he was a producer on this, too. He was so responsible for willing this movie into existence. Uh, He didn't mention anything like that. He made it seem like it was just the hot script around town that everyone was being sent and that everyone was bidding on. And he uh, paid the most for it, I believe. He he bought it from her for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which at the time was far and away the most anyone had ever gotten for a first screenplay. And everyone treated him like he was a lunatic for spending that much.
2: So I guess I, that all makes me wonder, you know, I, I don't think this is a great Zemeckis film. And I wonder if that's because it's really a Diane Thomas film. And I can you can sense some of that tension. um, There's almost two movies going on here a little bit. And whatever is personal in Romancing the Stone, I feel like comes from Thomas. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I I looked up I wasn't that familiar with her. So actually reading a little bit about her, I found a Douglas quote. Uh, I think this was in the L.A. Times. He said there was a total lack of fear to the writing. Uh, That's one of the things that attracted him to the screenplay, at least. And yeah, so she, she studied marketing at USC. She went on to study acting. Like you guys said, this is her first script. And it's got a great conceit to it. You know, this romance author. Who gets to live out one of her plots? Um, It's got a lot of nice lines in it. I, I love the early one with a lot of people get sick in department stores, you know, just kind of throwaway character. Lines like that. And Thomas's story is, you know, is is really tragic because she was killed in 85 in a drunk yeah. driving yeah, accident sucks. that her boyfriend was behind the wheel. So I think at that time she had even, speaking of Spielberg, gone under contract um, with Amblin. So she
1: I just was, uh, she wrote always. I mean, did she get the final
0: credit on that? She She did not. She did but- not. Okay. She was she was adapting, uh, she was working on Always. She also supposedly wrote this sort of famed, unknown Indiana Jones script that was set in a haunted house that always, like, oh. apparently Spielberg was not into, but does sound kind of fun. Like, I yeah, that sounds so would watch rad. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so obviously, yes, like, she her talent was so, you know, obvious, in ter- especially in terms of, like, writing this kind of... 80s movie that's like, you know, let's take a classic genre for like a slightly sexier, sexier, more grown up spin. Like it totally makes sense that Spielberg was like, yep, come to the ambulance stable. Like we're going to we're going to do movies together.
2: Yeah, because she knows the reference points, right? She knows all the influences that would that would, you know, turn on the light bulbs for those guys um, but I almost, I mean, we obviously are going to talk about this as a Zemeckis picture and I think it is in some ways, but to me, it's like the question is, is this a woman's picture? You know, is this, and by that, I mean, a of it's got a female protagonist. It's largely about concerns that traditionally wouldn't apply to men. It's angled, I think almost more toward a female audience. I mean, again, as a what, 11, 12 year old, I ate it up, but, um, I think it's romance in the stone is really unique as this sort of subterranean women's picture in Indiana Jones clothing.
1: I I agree. I think she is ultimately the author of this. I think this movie benefits from him saying like, I'm just here to serve this material because no one has been buying what I'm selling and everyone seems to like this script. So I'm just going to deliver this the best way that I can. And it's just him like all hands on deck. What let me show all my tricks, all my smarts, just in service of this material rather than trying to put my own fingerprints on it. Um, have you guys seen Jewel of the Nile? Yes,
3: not since I was a kid. So, I remember buying a 45. You guys remember? I don't know if yeah. you were around Griffin when sure. they had the 45s you used to put on your record player of Billy Ocean, When the Going Gets Tough, the theme yeah. song from Jewel of the Nile. <laughs> I assume that I watched Jewel of the Nile. I have no recollection of it. None. But um, I loved romancing the stone so much that I can't imagine and especially loving the hit song from the soundtrack. I can't imagine I didn't watch it. I watched them back to
1: back. I watched them two consecutive nights. I had not seen either before. I'd probably seen pieces of Romancing the Stone, but I'd not seen them full. I'd certainly never seen any of Jewel of the Nile. Um, Jewel of the Nile really, really uh, makes Romancing the Stone look good in a lot of ways. <laughs> right. and, and sort of around what we're talking about, it's like Jewel of the Nile is... Uh, making an immediate sequel. I mean, it comes out like a year and a half after the first one. It comes out the next calendar year and uh, you remove Zemeckis and Thomas from the equation and you realize what those two are contributing in their respective fields. And that very much doesn't feel like a woman's picture anymore. It does mm. not feel like a, a female led film anymore. And it's just sloppy. And and you're missing the heart of, I think, uh, Diane Thomas's genuine sort of insight and, and respect for these characters. And you're missing the zip of Zemeckis just knowing how to construct these sort of Rube Goldberg machine sequences so beautifully. And also just tone
0: and energy and pace. It's not a good movie. It's hard to be effortless, and it's also hard to recognize the whatever, the skill that went into making something feel pretty effortless. Like, romancing the stone is a convoluted movie like it, you know like <laughs> if you if you sort of say the plot out loud it sounds absolutely ridiculous it's like and then they go to you know meet these scary like gangsters but it turns out they love her book like you know all that but like <laughs> in romancing the stone it always you're just sort of like yeah i get it i'm fully in the river with this movie i'm like locked into the energy of this movie but that's yeah, yeah it's a sort of a weird trick to pull or it's a tough trick that's that's spielberg and
1: that's zemeckis I think I was undervaluing it on that exact line. And I know you guys, I had heard of you when we knew we were going to do Zemeckis, and we also knew we were going to be locked down for a while. So we're reaching out to people in uh, different cities about guesting via Zoom. I emailed you guys, and I had remembered you guys talking about Romancing the Stone over the years on the show that both of you had cited as like a movie you watched a lot when you were young. And I feel like generationally, it was one of those movies like Midnight Run That like really kind of exploded on home video and on cable like I -hmm. I, reading as much as I could about these two movies the last couple of days I see so much of people framing it as like it was a big hit when it came out and then like by two years later it was viewed as something of a modern classic just because. It's a perfect kind of movie. If that's on, you're going to sit down and watch the rest of it. If yeah. you have it on VHS, it's a, an easy rewatch. And much yeah. like Midnight Run, which I remember the first time I saw it, having that same thing of like, that's, that's it. Like this movie's good, but people are like religious about this. I now watch Midnight Run once a year. I think it's one of the most perfect movies ever made. Its, it's value unfolds the more you watch it and the more you compare it to the movies that break a sweat trying to do the same thing and coming up short.
3: Mm hmm. Yeah, that that all checks out for me. I, I don't remember. Unlike you, Josh, I don't remember seeing this in the theater. Doesn't mean I didn't. It probably would have come to my small little Iowa town with my one screen movie theater. But I remember it being on all the time, like on HBO or Cinemax, whatever. We had both movie channels. It was on all the time. And I feel like I watched it all the time. My dad watched it all the time, which it is odd. You think about it now. It it doesn't check out as the type of movie that, you know, necessarily a 10 or 11 year old boy would have been really obsessed with. Yes, it does as an adventure picture. And that element is there. But you're right, especially on this rewatch. And I don't think I've seen the movie since probably 85, 86. This was the first time in that long. Um, I did not remember just how much the movie was absolutely Kathleen Turner's movie and absolutely this romantic comedy. But I do think even then, as a, you know, a grade school kid. I was I wasn't just drawn to the the kind of swashbuckling aspect of it, but it was the connection between Turner and Douglas. They did have something on screen together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's undeniably. Undeniably. Right. Yeah. And and that's enough. You know, it doesn't matter what your what your gender is, what kind of movies you like or you don't like, whether something seems sappy or not. There was a chemistry that made them really fun to watch on screen. And uh, I that was certainly I, I know I bought into it.
2: Well, I think with Turner, too, you know, if you and I talked about this when we've uh, discussed Raiders, Adam, if you really gravitated towards Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark um, and, and, you know, recognize that this was a very different portrait than the damsel in distress adventure movies usually give you. Absolutely. You're going to also resonate with Kathleen Turner here, not because she's like that the whole way, but because you see. You almost see her becoming Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, Mm -hmm. as this as this movie progresses. So there's that entry point. And I just think for me at that age, you know, this this brought Indiana Jones one step closer to me. In terms of reality, because Raiders is taking place in the past, right? It's all over in another country. But then we watch this, and it starts in New York City. Um, You know, it's it's with like someone who's yeah a best-selling author, but still like relatively normal compared to the characters you get in Raiders. And I was like, her oh, life is boring. Like her despite life is the boring, fact That like, she has a big yeah.
1: career. Yeah, that's the yeah. brilliant entry point of this movie. I mean, and it's you like were how, how the close. Pitches.
2: Yeah, right. how close it's, could it's, this adventure be to me to a boring person? It's a lot closer. So And I, I was also surprised watching
1: it for the first time how much the Douglas character, Jack Colton, isn't this kind of stock archetype Dr. Jones character that he is very much like somewhat a guy playing the role.
0: You mm-hmm. know? Yes. He's he's kind of eighty percent full of shit, which I right. like.
1: Right. Both of these characters, this movie fundamentally is about these people sort of coming up on middle age, feeling kind of unfulfilled in their lives, even though they're ostensibly doing what they want to be doing. Yeah. And I I think like even if you feel like, well, that's a weird thing for 11 year old boys to relate to so strongly on HBO. I do think in a way that no one could have anticipated uh, it works in a way you're saying, Josh, which is, well, the fact that their lives are boring and that they don't totally fit in this environment makes it easier for me to relate to them than Indiana Jones, who I just know I'm never going to be that cool. I'm never going to be that smart. I'm never going to be that effortless.
3: Well, just like us, Kathleen Turner's life is all about the fantasy. I mean, it's the it's the movie we see at the beginning of the film, right? It's this movie that she's concocted in her head and that she is she is putting to paper. That's something maybe we couldn't have done, or or necessarily seen ourselves doing, but we're just like her in terms of watching those types of stories play out and wanting to insert ourselves
2: into them, just like Indiana Jones. And the fantasy of romancing the stone is if it could happen to her, maybe it could happen to me. Like yeah, maybe totally. I'd have a relative who goes to Columbia and needs my help. <laughs> I could get next phone thing as I know, husband <laughs> who's chopped up. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm swinging across a ravine. I mean, it's A leads to B.
0: <laughs> it is. I, I like that her. That the that of opening sequence is, is a hornier Indiana Jones, though, right? Like that, oh, I, I do like so that, good. like you say, what Like the 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 gaze here is a little different, right? Like you know the the what we're sort of perceiving. Like Indiana Jones, those movies are not chased, but they they they're more like boys' adventures.
2: Well, and here's yeah. where we here's where we get into Zemeckis. I think you know dropping the ball a little bit and working against the script that's been given him because. There's a there is a lot of leering here, right? A lot of leering of Turner. There's a lot of Turner's legs. And that is, you know, whatever you make of it independently in this context, in the context of the story um, that Diane Thomas wants to tell, that's out of place. Um, And you could say maybe it's being set up to be turned on its head later when she does start to make her own steps, you know, which I think happens. In the scene at the ravine, when he tells her to get behind him, and and she doesn't, she goes to the bridge, the rope bridge, right? Things start to turn there. But before that, we get a pretty leery camera here. Um, And it's, um, yeah, it's different than Indiana Jones, but I I do think there are times where it's butting heads with what the script wants for Joan Wilder.
0: She kind of fought with Zemeckis, right? Like, I mean, obviously, Kathleen Turner was sort of like a famously big personality, like, but like, it does sound like Zemeckis was like kind of trying to force her into those kinds of, like, you know, sort of splashy poses and, you know, the, the, what what you're talking about. Like, you know, she was sort of like this. I want to play a human being over here. And Zemeckis, he, he thinks in terms of iconography so much. So
2: did he want her to play the woman in the opening fantasy sequence, the Western?
1: I think he wanted to get there more. I mean, obviously the comedy and the 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 tension of the movie comes from her slowly e- becoming, you know, easing into this other role. Yeah. I think he, I mean, I, the quotes I read from her were her saying, like, he literally would just tell me to stand in ways that no human being can stand.
3: Hmm. He is so
1: obsessed <laughs> with images. He thinks so much visually and the brilliance of, oh, my God, and what if this comes into frame and this and that? Well, is there, there some Jessica Rabbit
2: like, going on here, too? Uh, well, it sounded
1: like a little bit. And he was the be, Hitchcock
2: like, critique, too. Right. Yes, Seeing actors yes. as cattle.
3: Right.
1: Right. To some degree, I think, perhaps between working with her, you know, with all of her difficulties and working with Douglas, who was both a producer and an actor. I think this might have been the movie that kind of broke him in to actually knowing how to direct actors, Uh, Because I don't hear that complaint later in his career. But here she's like, I really had to fight him a lot and explain to him like, it doesn't make sense for me to stand like this. It doesn't matter if the shot looks good. And if I'm standing like this, it's impossible for me to act. Like, it's impossible for me to get the emotions across if I'm doing this incredibly unnatural position just because for you, it like is a fun reference to some sort of cheesecake pose or whatever. Mm.
0: Well, and also you got to remember, like, her filmography at this point is just body heat and the man with two brains, basically. Like, that's it. Like, she's still so new. And obviously in body heat, she had landed as this, you know, this like sex symbol of the 80s. She's like... That's such a crazy star-making performance. So, like, I, I don't. I mean, she's so good in this movie. Like, sorry, in that way,
2: yeah. In that way, though, you know, coming off of those films, I I think it is interesting that he did also at the same time, while maybe trying to pose her in those ways, allow her to lean so heavily into the comic aspects of this role. You know, when you, especially when you think about the opening part of the film and she's playing, um, you know, ditzy. Um, she's you know, these aren't even now these aren't attributes I associate with Kathleen Turner. Right. No. She's we think of her as strong and sturdy and in charge. Low but here status. She's, yeah. And she's ditzy and dippy. And, um, you know, and he Zemeckis uh, creates the situations for that to be the main characteristic. So I think that works. And and yeah, I think she does. Turner makes this movie because it sounds like you guys are maybe a little higher on Douglas than I am. I think if we like Jack Colton at all, and it's debatable how much we're supposed to, um, it's only because of of Turner. I mean, she makes him interesting. It is all about Jones' reactions for me, not what Douglas is necessarily delivering.
0: I I think he's good. I like him. Yeah, I like, I like I, Michael I do Douglas.
1: I It's odd because it feels like this is the one performance of his that doesn't feel totally Michael Douglas-y where he's like channeling something kind of different. And then by Jewel of the Nile, he's fully like Gordon Gecko mode. Like he no longer <laughs> works in adventure setting. Something happened across those 15 months where suddenly he just like, he got more coke in his system. He went to more parties, whatever it was. You just can't <laughs> buy him as like a rugged outdoorsman. He's so sort of yuppie-ish. But- um, can, can we agree such- he
2: shouldn't be dancing? That the dancing is just—I oh. mean, it's worse than yes. Kevin Bacon and Footloose. <laughs>
0: wow. See, wow. come on Kevin now, bacon.
3: cut the mic. Just cut
2: the that mic. Was, that was for yeah. Adam.
0: <laughs> David loves to put bacon on the dish. It's one of his favorite I things. I love me a side <laughs> of bacon. But no, I like—I like him in this. But I like him because he's scummy. I like I—that—that's what I kind of you know sort of that—that's what separates this movie. What helps separate this movie because you know if you look at the poster right if you look you know you're like oh well yeah this is literally just Indiana Jones and sure, uh, right. <laughs> and it's it's sort of delightfully not Indiana Jones everyone in it is out for themselves at least initially like the mcguffin is sort of this useless thing, like uh, the, all of the stakes of this movie are, are weirdly low. I know her sister's in trouble. Like, I, I I do know that there is something that needs to be done. But like, like everyone in this movie is basically like after nothing in particular, like the, the final showdown is great. But they're all they're all just like blundering idiots. Well, what the,
2: what they're after? The, I mean, the goal, the stakes are are her independence, right? And it's kind of like her embrace yeah, of that. That's a great yes. independence. And do, I will Those give are Douglas the credit.
1: Stakes. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. He pulls off. You know, what's the line at the end? Something about, um, you know, you've always been. You'll be all right, Joan. You'll you always were. You know, and I don't know if that right. is uh, an Ann Thomas line, but uh, Douglas pulls it off, and I think that's kind of. That's the journey that we want to follow. Um, and that, that's what, you know, at least watching it now as an adult, you're most invested in.
3: Yeah, I, I would just say I'm I'm going to defend Douglas, too. I mean, there's there's a there's a ruggedness to him. There's a caddish quality. That's the same thing that that drew a 10 year old me, a younger me, even to Han Solo. I mean, of course, it's there to Indiana Jones, too. But there is there is a vulnerability. There is something to Douglas that suggests he's always a little bit in conflict and in crisis that you don't get with Harrison Ford. He's also a little sad and unfulfilled. He I mean, is, when yeah, No. There's I, that you, scene yeah. in
1: The Plane where they talk about uh, how he, he got to his sort of birding life. And it's just sort of like, well, I don't know, I want to do something exciting. You know, yeah. like, I never really found my thing.
0: Right, he kind of just cut corners until he found, like, that's that's exactly right. Like, his big dream is that he would buy a boat, like... That's, right. that's the top of the mountain to him. Like that, that's as far as he can think. Yeah. That's where the movie starts, right? She wants a man. He wants a boat. He wants <laughs> yeah. a boat, right?
2: Do, do they both become something more than that? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> she gets a man
3: on a boat. I do want to say that you bring up the, the of the camera. Um, and we see it in Douglas, right? Directly. I mean, the best shot in this movie is one where, you know, like her dresses, is, her, her is torn and you see that long Kathleen Turner leg and then they cut to a, A shot of him, like a medium shot, and he actually like licks his lips while he walks (laughs) and is looking at her like it's it's it is pretty disturbing. But what struck me about it, especially based on the beginning, and I think this gets at what you were suggesting about the the schism here between it being a Zemeckis film and a Diane Thomas screenplay and maybe some competition there is what we should actually be seeing. What I feel like we should be seeing is instead Joan Wilder leering at Jack Colton. Absolutely. It should be right. That's what this movie really should be. That's what the movie actually right. sets up
2: to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's leering at the posters. She's her leering apartment. at the poster, which yeah. is
3: which I mean, let's face it. It's almost like, well, and I, I read something just before we started taping that suggests they shot that after they would shot the rest of the film and screened it, that that mm. opening to fill oh, in the story about her. Hmm. OK, but. But all that did was also throw out the balance a little bit because they set her up as so mousy, as so in need of fulfillment, of fantasy fulfillment. Is so good. Yeah, I was re- so really immediately hooked. But yeah, yeah, it's so, and so good, much of That's her performance. It's so good that then, yes, Josh, the actual trajectory of this movie is her realizing sort of her full independence as a woman, realizing that she can uh, take these kind of risks. She can be the type of character that's in her, one of her stories. And. That does, to some extent, involve, uh, you know, holding out for the man that she thinks she deserves. Mm-hmm. And what, what's odd to me is that we see that poster in her apartment that is very clearly supposed to mimic or be a silhouette of the guy we meet later. And yet when we meet him for the first time, there's no sense. There, there's no Zemeckis doesn't really give us the moment where Joan Wilder looks at him and, and goes, wow, it's him. Yeah,
1: it's, the it's maybe
2: the boots, maybe when she sees the boots. But then once once, like he's revealed in full, the fantasy is shattered. Right. Because of how he treats her and how he how he talks to her. Yeah. Um, yeah. But
3: but where is that? Where is that split in her that she's drawn to him physically that she's that that he does, even if he isn't the Boy Scout that she seems to want on some level, as she describes how he should be trustworthy and honest and nice and all those things. He still is is physically. The ideal, right? That she's that she's built up, and yet we don't really sense that in her. That's the thing I like about Douglas in this movie. Is
1: like unlike someone like Harrison Ford, who always just deep down seems like a good guy. You know, even at something like Han Solo, you're like, I know he cares. He's telling me he doesn't, but I know he mm-hmm. cares. There's something but- so inherently. Scummy about Douglas that he cannot beat out of his system (laughs) and the fact that he is so modern that he is not this kind of classical romantic novel hero that he doesn't feel like a classical adventure hero that he's playing the part well but in a way that feels a little empty you know and that that he is so immediately kind of a turnoff to her. I do think that we should acknowledge he is a very conventionally attractive and charismatic person at this point in time. But you also understand why she would be completely put off by his aura, not just the way he's dismissive of her, but the fact that he's not, you know, very elegant, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's nothing very poetic about him. Uh, you know, he he's got this like gross sort of uh, a stench to him. And it, the, the movie also should be about I think it's almost about her coming to terms with the fact that she writes these very idealized people in these very idealized circumstances with very neat endings where love conquers all and you can find the absolute perfect man. And there is no such thing like this might be her dream guy. But her dream guy isn't a dream. He's he's a complicated person who has a lot of very irritating and unsavory qualities.
3: Yeah, I mean, there has to be some suspense to whether or not he actually is going to show at the end. Right. And yeah. if we if we buy into him too much as this idealized man, as a man of virtue, then
2: there there really is is no suspense there at all. And with Douglas, there's actual suspense. It's great that when they're on both sides, other sides of the river, opposite sides of the river, you know, that's just a great that's where that all is set up Mm -hmm. Um, and visually, you know, how how Zemecka stages that um, and that really, you know, that puts the emotional stakes at the forefront. I think also the scene at the plane we were talking about in the downed plane, that's where she does start to turn and see possibilities in him. But it's interesting. It's not because he has fulfilled her vision the book cover guy, it's because exactly what uh, one of you were talking about, he's talking about his failures, you know, and the ways ways that he he feels inadequate. Then it's that it's a little bit of vulnerability that, you know, trumps the scuzziness, I guess, for her. And she starts to see him as a possibility. Talking about the sort of leering qualities and how maybe the gaze might be
1: misdirected in this movie. There's the third author of this film we have to talk about as such, which is Douglas. You know, there's the Zemeckis Mm -hmm. movie, which is, let me do a, a skill piece. Let me showcase all of my directing bravura. There's Diane Thomas, who has actual things she wants to say. This is a personal movie. Douglas said that she very much was like this character, that she had this kind of energy that this very much felt like, uh, you know, a fancy fulfillment of her internal life uh, writing the screenplay. And then Douglas was the third major creative force in this movie and was a very hands on producer. The first thing you see in this movie is just giant letters, a Michael, Michael Douglas, Douglas production. production.
0: Yeah. Right. I mean, he and was that, an Oscar winning producer. He was the thing. Yeah. So is this I mean, a
2: bid? This isn't a bid for prestige because he's got that. Right. So what is this a bid absolutely. for just,
0: main, this, just mainstream success. This is the success. bid to
1: be a leading man. I mean, yeah.
0: that's
2: the weird thing right. here.
0: Yes, because like in the 70s, he was on the streets of San Francisco, right? He was like yes. tipped for this leading man status. Obviously, he's Hollywood royalty. And then it doesn't work out. You know, like when you see him in like The China Syndrome, which is another one he produced, and he's good in that movie. But he's like kind of like playing a shaggy hippie type. Like, you know, he seems almost scared of like this kind of a role, like the lead the role. Energy. like uh, Yeah, exactly. And it's it's funny. But right. This is and DeVito is like an old butt of his right. Like DeVito's in One yeah. Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. They've known each other forever.
1: So can, can I fill in a couple of gaps here from the interviews? Yeah, I watched for sure, him? for sure. DeVito was his roommate out of drama school. They were living together in New York and both like, man, I wonder if I'll ever get to be a star. And DeVito was
0: like, You're Kirk Douglas's son. You're, yeah, be right. a star. you're handsome. I'm 411 <laughs> and you're right. Kirk Douglas's son. I don't know if we're gonna go for the same like arc here.
1: Right. But you know, DeVito does uh um, Uh, Martin Bress short film, which got a lot of attention and that sort of put him into circles. He was mostly Broadway off Broadway actor. And then Douglas gets cast on streets of San Francisco. Uh, DeVito said the thing that proved me that he was a good guy was once he got cast on streets of San Francisco, he kept paying our rent in New York. So DeVito lived alone, but only had to pay half the rent while he was working off Broadway for years. Um, But yes, like uh, Douglas one floor of the cuckoo's nest was the rights were purchased by Kirk Douglas originally, right? Who then realized he was too old to play the character and then gave them to Michael.
0: I, I think, uh, well, yeah, you're right on the first one. I thought that it was kind of that Michael kind of fired him, but you're correct that he was too old. He had done it on stage is that right I mean it had been produced on stage DeVito was in it on stage like a lot of I think the cast was from but yes like I I forget if it's that Michael Douglas had the balls to fire his dad or his dad knew you know he couldn't do it but I but that's sort of the narrative
1: I think he did and he was actually you know a very hands-on producer in that movie I think he briefly tried to get it made with himself and no one would go for it he talked about the fact that despite Him playing a very conventional leading man on a hit network TV show and being the son of a legend and being a handsome, charismatic guy, there was very much still the TV ghetto at that point where it was very hard to cross the bridge from being a TV star, which was seen as kind of light entertainment to being a movie star. And so people didn't want to put him in movies. He started producing largely to try to get vehicles made for himself. And by and large, people wouldn't finance those movies if he was in them. So, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He's not in. He produces it anyway. He wins the Oscar. That gives him a lot more clout as a producer. So then he does China Syndrome. China Syndrome. He puts himself in as the third lead. And as David said, he's kind of the one of the three leads who doesn't really hit. The other two guys get nominations. They're already legends. It makes them only more popular. He's fine in it, but as you said, he's not using his fastball, which is no. Right. This is cinema's greatest adulterer. This is a cad. (laughs) This is the guy you can't help but root for, even though he's only sort of representing our basest instincts, our most basic instincts, if you will. Um, And so this was sort of the same thing, where at this point he's feeling a little defeated. Uh, Maybe I can't make it as a star. Maybe I'm more of a producer. You know, Uh, acquires this script, doesn't want to play the part goes out to a bunch of other people. Everyone turns it down. People say to him, why aren't you playing this? You bought the script. You know, you have a production company. You spent $250,000 for the script. Why wouldn't you play this? And he went, oh, you're right. It's a good part. I now have the cachet to get myself cast. I'll just do it. And this is the thing that finally made him a star. And, you know, much like Kathleen Turner, the rest of the 80s for her are incredible. And then in the 90s, she sort of hits a wall. And Douglas, it's like everything after this is a hit. Like he has a run for the next 15 yeah, years Yeah, he like, doesn't after this look movie. back for yeah. sure. Yeah. It just solidifies it. So for him, I think he went into it mostly as a producer. I want to make a hit. I want to further bolster my career as someone who can get movies made. And I think he only took the lead role out of, you know, a little bit of selfish interest in getting to play something good that no one would cast him in otherwise. But mostly, I think, as a functionary of I know I can do this and I just want quality control over the film, I'll get it made. I think after this, he starts producing a lot less, and his persona is defined. But they talk so much about the fact that, you know, he's the one who acquired the script, not a studio. He brought it to Fox. He's the one who hired Zemeckis, even though the last two films were flops because he thought he was a good director. I think everyone was kind of answering to him to a degree, and it sounds like he was very much the one managing, like, the tension between uh, Kathleen Turner and Zemeckis and everybody. He was sort of mediating everything. And I think the times where the movie gets misaligned in terms of objectifying her rather than objectifying him, I kind of feel like it's his influence. I feel like it's the Michael Douglas that fully comes out after this movie <laughs> that is just all yeah. sexual drive, you know? Right. It,
2: yeah, if you're looking at what he goes on to do compared to what Zemeckis goes on to do, you're going to, you're going to, point to him about the leering for sure that makes a lot of sense but it's a very it's a very canny choice for him to take on this role in retrospect and maybe it's the way he plays it maybe it's the way the character is in the script but as as we've said already this isn't the straightforward indiana jones he is a little sleazier but he also is willing to be deflated right and so you think of the moment where he jumps in the car he's gonna hotwire it because he knows how to hotwire a car and what does she say? Try the key. She's like, just use the keys. You it, know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so already it's kind of like he's kind of a he's kind of a boob in that moment. And yet at the same time, there are many instances of deflation. He not only he's really canny in the climax because she saves herself. Right. From um, from the guy who's gets his hand chomped off by the alligator. She's left to fight him one on one and saves herself. But we see. That Douglas makes the choice to save her, to try and save her, rather than go after the jewel. So he yep. gets the moral credit, right? Right. He, he gets the, eventually. He
0: he he blows it a couple times and then figures it out, right? But in like, the, yeah. In that moment, right. by letting the yes. alligator
2: go, he gets the moral credit. Yet she gets the credit for saving herself. And then when he catches up to her, he gets that moment I talked about where he affirms her independence. So it's like, you don't need me. You don't need a man. Um, And so it's a really canny way to position himself as, yeah, kind of a sleazy guy, but at the end, also kind of an upright guy. Um, And that probably got him some cachet in terms of what he could be cast in moving forward.
0: If I can float a theory, I think there's like there's something especially if you're thinking in 1980 uh what is this 84 83 this is 84. uh, 84 yeah like he looks so much like kirk douglas like and like there's a whole generation now that probably doesn't you know more than a generation two generations probably they don't even think about that but at the time when he's popping up on screen you're still you're not that far from kirk douglas's superstardom so like It's it kind of cuts both ways. Like, you know, when he shows up, you're like, well, there's Michael. That's a movie star face. But I think what works about this role for him and what is helping him is that he's like, yeah, but I'm kind of a schmuck. Like, he's kind of acknowledging, like, look, I'm the kid. Like, I'm the one who's still figuring it out. And that's maybe what makes this endearing in, in a way that the other stuff hadn't been. He's got to
2: own it. He's got to earn his own way. I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind of like, you know, I'm going to earn my own way in this movie as this character, just as I'm trying to earn my own way in Hollywood.
1: Right. And and he's able to sort of like he's in a very, very uh, a lucky position where he has at his disposal the ability to essentially parody his genealogy, and his legacy. Like, his very presence in a movie is mocking uh, a kind of model of classical male movie stardom. Because, like, Kirk Douglas was Mr. Prestige, Mr. Epic, you know, this amazing, like, masculine movie
0: star, like, profile. He was tough and scary. He played bastards. Like, he played, like, kind of, you know, he he was kind of the dark star of his time. Mm
1: -hmm. Right, and I feel like, before this, Michael Douglas is trying to be like a, a conventionally likable movie star, a conventionally sympathetic leading man. And this movie gives him the gift of realizing oh, people like it when I'm kind of a shit. Like people weirdly rude mm-hmm. for me. I just always think about this story. It was in some like, you know, Hollywood in the 80s documentary or whatever, but talking about uh, sitting next to some of the studio executive or filmmakers talk about sitting next to Michael Douglas at a screening of Fatal Attraction. And there's like, you know, a scene where he's with Gunn Close and then he leaves and then he goes and gets in bed with his real wife in a very short period of time. And whoever it was just turns to him at the screening and goes, it's unbelievable like they just saw you cheating on your wife and the audience is with you. You could feel it in the audience that they were just like, "How? why are they rooting for you? Like this person turned to him and said this at a test screening. But he does just have that weird magic where I understand if your dad was like Spartacus, you might have the vanity of saying, I don't want to be that kind of anti-hero. I don't want to be a scumbag. I don't want to be weak. You know, I don't want to be pathetic. But then this movie within a comedic context shows how innately well he plays there in that zone. And I think he just runs with it. He just he's like, I get it. I know who I am on screen now.
3: Yeah. I mean, if he is, you know, our id, that means we we do still we see ourselves in him. We we can relate to him in a way. Right. I mean, if you think about Gecko, maybe is one of these roles that follow this. That's that's an aspirational type of character. I mean, the idea and the whole point of the film is right. Bud Fox thinks he can become Gordon Gecko, And then the question is, what compromises are you willing to make? Do you really want to be him? But all those other characters that have been mentioned, I mean, fatal attraction, disclosure, isn't the whole point that we go, OK, that could be us. I, I, I could maybe be if I was if I was maybe just a little bit as good looking as him. And, you know, could whatever. I, could I get away with it? Could I get away with it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's that's the CD thing that he taps into in our psychology. And I think for women, it was like, I, I know I shouldn't, but there's something appealing about this guy. Like, there's just that weird, dangerous edge to him that this movie uses really well. I think it accidentally, like, isolates his key movie star quality for him, Um but, but you know, he talks so much about all the decisions he was making weren't made in sort of movie star vanity. They were in the vanity of, I want to have a hit movie. I want to hit Michael Douglas production. That's what would help me. I could then get other things greenlit. I don't even think him being able to use that juice as a leading man was at the forefront of his mind. And then putting DeVito in it was like, oh, here's my buddy. You know, he's now on Taxi. I want to help him make that TV to movies Leap, And it's another weird one where it's like watching this and Jewel of the Nile back to back. It is wild how it's like Jewel of the Nile, DeVito's the third name over the poster. He's in it almost as much as the two of them. He becomes an equal lead. Like it was just so clear that like, oh, America can't get enough of Danny DeVito.
2: Oh, I couldn't s- get enough. At, at at 11, I thought it yeah, was right. the funniest thing right. in this movie. And the one – so this watching this movie, it's an example of where, like, I realized how many times I watched it as a kid because you start to, like, predict the lines and predict the beats. And and one of those was absolutely DeVito running down that hill, shooting and backwards, shooting. like, over oh, yes. the edge. It's just like – like,
0: I just ate that up as a kid. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen, so – It's also crazy that there are three movies where the above the title billing is Michael Douglas, uh, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito... (laughs) And, you know, two of them are these two movies. So that makes sense. But then they, right. they're just like, let's do it all again, guys, for a completely unrelated movie. And DeVito's directing now. I mean, yeah. The War of the Roses is a good movie.
2: Well, it speaks to I, the chemistry that Adam yes. was talking about that Douglas and and Turner do have. And, and I think, yes. you know, we've talked about the references here, Indiana Jones being the most obvious, but um, – you could even look at It Happened One Night, right? The Frank Capra road trip screwball comedy, mm-hmm. Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert. I mean, it's, it's not in that league at all, but you can see like maybe that's what they're going for. And there are exchanges between Douglas and Turner where they almost get there. Um, you know, they do have that repartee. So you could see why they would continue to work together.
1: There's that For very sure. classical sort of oil and water dynamic here where you're mm-hmm. just like, how could these two people possibly end up together by the end of this movie, which is very, you know, it happens one night. I mean, when they talk about the the feeding frenzy that the script caused when it went out on the market, it was like everyone went, oh, my God, she's kind of created a new subgenre. Like she's put a couple things together that no one's ever synthesized before. And they talk so much. I mean, you're talking about the moments where it gets sort of overly crude and sexual. They're talking about how unconventional this movie seemed at the time when the main source of comedy was still in the shadow of like Animal House and Mel Brooks, you know, that Blazing Sal's and Animal House and and uh, I'm mean, Ghostbusters, I guess, is the same year as this. but like that, the national Lampoon sensibility you know, was still like the dominating comedic force. It was very sexual. It was very anarchic. And this movie is very classical in its comedy. You know, the DeVito stuff feels like Bugs Bunny. And the two of them, as you said, feel like it could be like Hepburn and Tracy or whatever. And the idea that it was like, oh, this thing has actual action set pieces. It has actual kind of classical comedy in it. And it works as a romantic story. And you're putting in this sort of adventure patina that just worked really well with Indiana Jones. People were just like, this is everything. She's found mm-hmm. out how to put everything that people <laughs> like into one movie. This should work for everybody.
2: Yeah. And DeVito, you know, with the Bugs Bunny connotation, that's a perfect match for Zemeckis, right? Because I think that's what he does yep. bring here that's good is the Looney Tunes sensibility, the Roger the Rabbit sensibility. I think, Griffin, I think you called it Zip and This movie has that it has farce and it has chaos, but it's it's always just on the edge of teetering over. But Zemeckis keeps it in control, even a little moment like DeVito's little car pulling that U-turn on the muddy jungle road. It's bouncing around like this yellow balloon. And it's this wonderful cartoonish throwaway moment that, you know. As a kid and even now, it makes you giggle. It it captures DeVito's character. And that is definitely, that's the sort of stuff that Zemeckis brought for me is just that good cartoonish vibe and zip, as you said.
0: I love it when someone has a car that, reflects (laughs) reflects yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean Like I just yes. love it when like a car pulls up and I'm like Danny totally. DeVito should be driving this car and then he like gets out of the car I'm like that's perfect DeVito that's exactly cars, what I want but, right. Right. not yes. only is that
1: the car he owns but he should be the hood ornament like there should be a little chrome <laughs> DeVito at the top of
0: it. It, it I'm you know I'm thinking of also of like Pesci and the Lethal Weapon movies like what are other movies where they were Same like deal. a thing you, yeah. a thing that, you want is like right? a, a third right. sort of yes you know spicy comedy guy ish like you know to sort of like tag along. Like it's very I think of it as very 80s, 90s. The jump for how much
1: they center DeVito in Jewel of the Nile is very similar to what they do with Pesci in Lethal Weapon, where it's like, oh, you like this in right. small doses? Yes, the whole yes. about him now. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. yeah right. Right. Yes, yes. He's everywhere. Like well, half of, Jewel of the Nile, for you. Right. Half of Jewel of the Nile is. Uh, Kathleen Turner's being held hostage and it's
3: Douglas and DeVito together. <laughs> like, it's not even DeVito <laughs> oh, oh, oh. chasing them. It's the two of them are the buddy picture. Yeah, based on this, you can't imagine that DeVito would be a key part of any
0: sequel. You, no. I mean, there's no reason based right. on his character. Right. Totally. You might In just think film. like, right, oh, that's the end of him. Right. Yeah. And like, well, that was a nice little appearance by Danny DeVito. Right. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, fine. there
1: are ostensibly like, Four antagonist characters of his size, not physically, but in, uh, real estate in the movie. Uh, in this film, he doesn't have a larger role than any of them. He just does more with his
2: screen time. It's just that right, thing does. where it's like, well, and he's he's, he's inherently in sync with funny, That's and what it is. He's the He's on the same plane as yes. Zemeckis.
1: Right? Because I I was surprised knowing how much he became like the third guy above the title in the second movie. And I mean, he was in this movie, but he's sort of overbilled, uh, knowing how much this sort of like launched his career to the next level. I assumed he was going to be the third lead and he's not in a ton of it. It's just that every time he's on screen, he's, he's so capturing the energy right. of the
0: movie in his little body. Mm-hmm. It's just, we've talked about it, but it is just crazy that he had a 10 year run as both a bankable leading man in Hollywood and like a sort of surprisingly like talented director yes. of dramas, yes. like at the same time, yes, like it, yeah, and that like that you would bill him over Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns, and David, <laughs> like, he's you're forgetting second build in Batman you're Returns, you're forgetting
1: the third step of that argument, which is he also became a major producer, right, and then he also becomes like combinations. I think just two,
0: but like, yes, just a, fiction a, a and good, Aaron good, right. A good indie ish producer. It's true. Yeah. Like it's just the guy from taxi. Like I, and I love Danny DeVito. I want to be clear. Oh, like too. I have nothing but respect for, and, and admiration for Danny DeVito, but, uh, just like, they would make movies where, like, what's the premise? Well, it's like, oh, well, Danny DeVito's a jerk. Like, that's right. the premise of the movie. Like, other people's what's the premise money, of this one? DeVito's you know. a single father. Fine. <laughs> Greenlight.
1: Like, Jack the Bear. Like, that's what's so wild is you're like, okay, great New York theater actor. This guy screams New York, like, you know, Soho basement playhouse energy. You could see how he'd pop there. Him getting onto something like Taxi dream tailor-made for him but it feels like man this is this guy got so lucky that this part existed there are not many sitcoms in which he would fit into properly this is a perfect role for him and then he gets something like romancing the stone and you're like well very lucky very lucky that michael (laughs) douglas is his good friend there are not a lot of movies you could imagine dane devito fitting into but this role is perfect for him and then shortly after this they're just like
2: no dane devito is a movie star we build vehicles around Danny devito (laughs) Griffin, the uh, Jack the Bear reference made this whole night worth it.
0: Jack the Bear. But isn't that wild that that movie exists? It is. That one's (laughs) a wild one. That's that's Marshall Herskowitz, right? It's it's Rick's other guy, his partner. Right. Yes. But it's like you
1: look at, I was just running through all the DeVito vehicles because this is still the period where it's like he's and Danny DeVito. He's won a couple- Uh, Emmys you know he's a TV star you throw him in for a couple scenes to be funny this is the one that I think kind of pushes him over the edge and then you have like wise guys the Joe Piscopo Danny DeVito (laughs) two-hander directed by Brian De Palma Uh, Mm -hmm. you have twins obviously is just like humongous Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: well he had yeah he had some of those big comedies wasn't other people's money I feel like that's later
1: yeah, that's, that's a um, Ruthless, Ruthless people, people is the one right after there this. There you go. He, yeah, it, that's right. his first. I'm first build. It's a Danny DeVito movie.
0: Yeah, that's which huge. is a Zucker Abraham Zucker yeah. joint. You know, that's huge. Tin Men and you know, but also he starts directing. Like he does, throw bomber from the train in '87. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, War of the Roses in '89. Like, and it, both of those
1: like, are huge hits. They're like incredibly dark, violent comedies that are both huge mainstream hits.
0: Like when he made Hoffa, he's on the poster of Hoffa. Have you seen yes. the poster? Like it's Nicholson, Nicholson. DeVito, a De Danny DeVito De film. over Hoffa. his shoulder. Yes.
2: It's he really. He really should have been in the Irishman now in retrospect. I wish. He should have I
0: been. Oh God. wish. That's the only thing now it's like, I still love Danny DeVito. And I love that he has like a 150 episode run in, you know, it's always sunny as this yeah. like, eighth you know thing in his career like this new wave but i would like to see him do more like weird kind of dark character stuff with serious directors which i feel like he used to do more of like you know he'd pop up in like heist or something cool like that it it feels like devito only really shows
1: up for burton now and then other than that, it's like he's got his always sunny gig and he does very lucrative voiceover work. Anytime there's a cartoon character that people think looks like Danny DeVito, he's like, yeah, fine, I'll be the Lorax. And <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> right, you wish he was doing, you know, even though some of these are smaller roles than other, but like you wish he was doing Heist. You wish he was doing the Rainmaker. You wish he was doing Virgin Suicides. Like you oh, wish he's he was doing the Rainmaker.
0: I forgot yeah. about the Rainmaker. That's a he's good a that's good, a good 90s DeVito.
1: I also I wish he directed more. Like I like all of his movies other than Duplex. Uh, you know, and I think he did a thing like when we talked about lucky numbers on this show, we talked about like how anytime Hollywood tries to do a big, shiny, very dark comedy with movie stars it bombs, and pretty much those DeVito movies are the only exception.
0: He also in Scalia retire bitch. One of the one of the greatest tweets of all time.
1: And drinking, uh, hungover from Limoncello on The View, which is also one of the best performances of all time. He's
0: got a lot lot of feathers in his cat. That's Range. all I'm saying.
1: Range. <laughs> He's a renaissance man, and that's another Danny DeVito vehicle. Renaissance man.
0: <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Romancing the stone. We haven't really talked the plot that much. I guess there's not like a lot to worry about on that front. I'm trying to think of other stuff we need to touch on.
2: It's actually... I think we were saying how it was... It was convoluted before, but it's actually pretty straightforward. You know, it's very um,
0: straightforward. It's just that every twist is a—you always have to be like, okay, sure, yeah, right. Well, like it has fun. that cartoon yeah. short
2: element where everything keeps getting <laughs> right. ratcheted up, right? Right. Well, yes. I got—I got a question, and this is kind of a—here's a bad nostalgia bell that rung for me. I were does anyone else who saw this? If you saw this when you were young, remember the hysteria about the country of Colombia. That existed in the '80s, and how this totally fed into it. I think this was part of the whole war on drugs um, right, right, thing right. going on because Colombia here is, you know, it's basically drugs and danger, right? That's all we're we're all we're, we're getting here. If the, there's violent swarthy men and uh, yes. backwards peasants, but other than that, it's a place of drugs and danger. So That's this why thing they is didn't just, shoot there, Josh. <laughs> exactly, it's too dangerous. Yeah, it's dripping with you know the xenophobia, and I can't decide. I want to spend a little time on Alfonso Arau- Arau, um as the the drug kingpin. In the country, who is the fanboy of Joan Wilder, right? Has all her books. I can't decide if he's undercutting the xenophobia or feeding into it. Um, I, I think, think his scenes I, are hilarious. <laughs> Driving I, I around. I think he's undercutting
1: it, but it's a it's a razor thin line. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. That sounds right.
1: It's also interesting, like Jewel of the Nile goes full fictional country. It's just like made up, I think maybe even unnamed country in Africa. And Mm. that one is about like religious leaders and Mm. dictators. It's not about like smuggling in the same kind of way. The weird twist of that movie is that Jewel of the Nile is, as Beanie Feldstein would say, the titular role. They think that they're trying to get another big, brightly colored rock. And in fact, the thing they're trying to get is... A spiritual leader. It's a guy whose
2: name is Jewel. Uh, Bad movie. But This is is coming back to me now as you describe it. But it's
1: that weird thing where it feels like, and and that makes sense to me now. I mean, now that you're putting in the context of like, you know, 80s sort of like Latin America drug running xenophobia. That's where all
2: the problems were coming from, right? It wasn't us in the
1: U.S. No. Right. Like Jewel Denal feels a lot less specific and also feels more offensive in its own way. But I can see <laughs> them like overcorrecting in two directions and somehow making things worse.
2: <laughs> How'd you like the Alan uh, Silvestri score? You know, some good 80s Saxon synth going there. It's, it's Great classic. Score. 80s. This is
0: the first collaboration with Zemeckis, right? Or yeah, like, yeah, it is. He's like it a is. lifer then after that, right? He yes, just keeps exactly. working with him.
1: This is also the first uh, Dean Cundy uh, Zemeckis movie. And they yes. just. Roll over. He takes Kundi and Zemeckis and uh, sorry, Silvestri with him to Back to the Future the next year. It's another thing that you totally feel missing from Jewel of the Nile. And mm. it shows just kind of how lucky Zemeckis was
2: with all the elements he was given on this movie. Well, there is that. Beautiful shot. I, you know, I, I joked about the dance scene, but it ends with that beautiful shot of them sort of coming together. The music slows down. You get the fireworks behind them. And as I'm describing it, it sounds like the cheesiest thing in movie history, but there's something really elegant about it when you see it on the screen. And that's an important moment, right? Going back to, to how she perceives Douglas's character and how he plays that part. Cause that's, we know he's made the choice at that point to betray her. Yet it's it's also the moment where she is, you know, thinking she maybe has found the guy.
3: Now, you you malign Michael Douglas's dancing. Oh, it's painful to watch. Maybe rightfully so. But I noticed watching it last night that there's something just slightly off about it, and it's not his dance moves. It's the the fact that you see him interacting with Joan and talking while other people are moving around them and there's other noise, but you're not hearing anything they're saying it just there was something about it that i was like well, what's going on here and then i read i read some articles like 15 facts about romancing the stone and this completely made sense that was all just caught by the dp stolen moments that oh, was wow. that right. was michael douglas just dancing between takes with with Kathleen Turner and other cast members, and he only so found that's out why they're later they're <laughs> not using any of the audio. That's exactly Griffin, like,
2: yeah. you beat me to it. So wow. no, so they 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 just Zemeca caught that saw and said, please don't do that while no, I'm filming. Douglas yeah. found
3: out later that he was on camera the whole time, and they ended up they ended up using it. And I wow. think my mom and other boomer women swooned. Josh, so I don't care what you think. <laughs> yeah,
1: hmm. it does speak to just how well cast the the two of them and and further Devito are in this movie. That it's like. They're just so fully giving the right energy that you can shoot them unawares and it's still workable footage, you know? Yeah, they're um, just great together. And I, another, yeah.
2: like, Turner moment that I love is when they're in the car, DeVito's car, right? Is it DeVito's car mm-hmm. floating down the river at that yeah. point? And, yeah. um, and she's trying to steer it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even though whether calls that, out again, it. is a Zemeckis suggestion, a Turner improvisation or something in the script, but um, just a great touch that is sort of cartoonish and screwball in the moment that is supposed to be also like a very serious action moment, right? Mm-hmm. And she talked about how hard she fought for this role because post
1: body heat, they thought she was too sexy for this. They were like, well, the whole premise of the movie is this woman should seem unconventional in this environment. Uh, they're not going to buy you. And she had to, like, convince them to let her do a screen test with her hair up, with no makeup, you know, Mm -hmm. with a pencil in her mouth, Mm -hmm. like, doing essentially all the stuff at the opening of the movie. A cat lady. And you, Yeah. yeah, yeah. and you feel like she has this energy in this performance from getting to show a different side of her. I mean, you can just only imagine her being, like, a woman having this big, highly sexualized breakout role Wanting so hard to work against getting pigeonholed, wanting to yeah. make sure that she can show that kind of
2: range. and well, she's why so she bristle why she'd bristle yeah. at being positioned into that role again?
1: right. And when the movie starts out, even though you know Kathleen Turner and you know what she can play, you still go, I can't believe at the end of this movie she's going to be swinging over a ravine, you know? (laughs) Like, she does sell you on. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like this character is capable of making that journey. But she is, and it's very satisfying to watch. I mean, I feel like we've talked through a lot of the plot in sort of circuitous way, talking through all these elements. But you go from that that cold open, which is like one of those moments where I went, oh, right, this is a Zemeckis movie. Like, there's just a, a skill... And the craft to the way he's doing that homage, the the sort of Western romance homage at the beginning, even down to just like, I'm like, he got the colors right. He got the lighting right. Like, this yeah. feels like you're watching a John Ford movie. You know, the guy's enough of a nerd that he really didn't want to just go like, this is a parody of mm-hmm. this type right. of thing. I'm going to very specifically emulate the visual language of the type of book she's
2: writing if it were translated into a movie. It was a little bit like... Uh Once Upon a Time in the West, I I think, too, in in terms of the character, you know, Claudia Cardinal's terrorized Mrs. McBain. um, That's kind of who that character is playing there. This woman who's who's being threatened and is going to try to take her own uh, take things in her own hands. And he's a guy who loves classic Western so
1: much. That's the thing that he and Gale and Spielberg bonded over. Uh, that that he he like rammed back to the future into becoming a Western at the end of the franchise, even though there was no reason for it to go to that direction. So you feel that excitement there. And then the tonal jump from that to Kathleen Turner in her home is so good. And like just all the shit with her, like writing the notes to remind herself of all the basic life things she has to do is such good, concise characterization and also felt like it hit way too close to home and lockdown. Where I feel like every day I try to do something in my apartment, I have to remind myself, oh, right, you were supposed to take care of this yesterday. Your sink isn't
0: working because you forgot to buy a wrench. (laughs) I've gotten very into to-do lists as well, and I will admit, yes. I have
1: to, because I just walk around my apartment and I have to, like, note, like, what are the five things I need the next time I leave? When I, like, prepare myself like Ernest Shackleton to brave the outdoors (laughs) What are the five things I need to get from Dwayne Reed? And when I come home and I realize I forgot one of them, it feels like a massive failure. Um, But the movie moves so fast after that. I mean, you have the good setup with her and Holland Taylor where you just essentially say exactly what's going on in this character. Mm -hmm. You know, she feels a little bit trapped in her success uh well and you she, also see
2: like this need for a man is being foisted upon her too right because Taylor is, is, is like yeah, what's society, the problem she, right. she's picking out all the men at the bar which ones are acceptable her neighbor in her building the question she you know i what does she say something like i'm still holding out hope for you so not only yeah. do you need a man but time is running out right? right so right
1: um but you have i mean i feel like she gets the call from her sister within the first 15 minutes right
0: yeah, that sounds uh, right. If, if not, like 10, very quickly. Yeah. This is not a long movie. This is like an hour, 45 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Like, yeah. But you get the stakes of the movie,
1: which are her sister. I like how, how sort of like flippantly they explain like well you know this honeymoon she went on her husband just died i mean geez right. louise wait yeah. why is she calling and how the fact <laughs> the he was cut the up husband showed up dead right was butchered they, they just leave just that. sort of like say, la vie i mean i don't know <laughs> bad trip it's,
2: it's i think we've established it's colombia
1: it's colombia right the scariest place on earth um But yes, you know, she knows her sister is still overseas, that her husband's been chopped into a million pieces. But now she gets the call that she's gotten caught up in something worse and she's being held hostage. And she has to go bring the map to her sister. And the movie, I mean, it is like a Looney Tunes thing. The whole sort of like main story is put in a motion because she gets on the wrong bus when the right. signs are turning the wrong direction sure. and someone points the wrong way which is like Bugs Bunny like I took a the wrong turn at Albuquerque shit. <laughs> like it's very like so by chance, you know, these three things sort of like comically going wrong at one moment put her in the wrong bus which crashes into the wrong car which gets her set up with the wrong guy and the thing that I was so impressed with and it, it's like This weird thing watching, seeing this movie so late uh, after seeing so many films that were influenced by this movie and are trying to replicate this movie. You realize the things that they get wrong that this movie got right in a way where you're like, why wasn't everyone ripping them off more closely? But the fact that they sort of start to warm up to each other under an hour in. Like, I feel like that scene in the plane is, like, 50 minutes in. And the scene where they sleep together is, like, a little over an hour in. And I feel like most movies like this wait until an hour and 45 minutes for them to realize yes. they like each other. Mm-hmm. Then they have one final fight. They break up and they get back together at the end. Right.
0: That's mm-hmm. why I love it. I love that yeah. they sleep together halfway through. And but they're like, he's only definitely decided to stop being an asshole right at the end of the movie or well, close.
1: They can still bicker, but kind of be into each other. And I feel like so many movies mess it up where they're like, no, they need to keep on fighting 90 percent of the running time, like tooth and nail, which at a certain point
2: just becomes unpleasant to watch. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just like, well, they're they're never going to like each yeah. other. There's not enough of a mixture like the classic screwball comedies. The, the detest was always mixed with the attraction and then right. the, the mixture changed as the movie went on. And then the ones that get it wrong, they either detest each other or they're attracted. It's A or B, right? right? There's there, no th- tension. The mixture. Yeah, there's no tension. Right. This gets the
1: classical push and pull. And it's nice, as you said, David, just have them sleep together an hour in. That's not the end of their conflicts. New conflicts will arise. Like, don't set right. that up like it's the 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 final challenge. You know, the thing that will solve their relationship forever It's just not a when chased they a for movie, the first time. No, right? I it's I appreciate
0: that about it. Like, especially since it's Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, who are these stars I associate with, like, 80s steaminess like in all of its glory
1: right there's they're sweaty sex actors
3: yeah it's great (laughs)
1: should have more of those they like (laughs) being sweaty and having sex
3: you brought up the and I, i i know we shouldn't scrutinize the script too much here but when you were talking about getting on the wrong buses and stuff i do remember watching it and thinking okay even early on they've set up this zolo As if he's like the baddest, most evil guy on the planet. He's the butcher. He's this terrible presence. He takes out the super. Why? Why does he get on the bus and go like 12 hours into the countryside (laughs) when he could have literally just I mean, he could have at any moment when they got off the the plane, just grabbed her, gotten whatever he wanted. And there wouldn't be a movie. Like, you have that dumb luck moment that it's like, oh, she's naive. What
1: a coincidence. The person she asked to help her figure out what bus to get on is the guy who's been trying to hunt her. Okay, I'll give you that movie contrivance. That's how movies work. The moment that doesn't make sense is that Zola's result is like... What I want is for her to get on this wrong bus. I'll get on the bus with her and right. then I'll kill her maybe tomorrow.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> don't. Especially when he has a militia at his disposal. Yes. <laughs> it's not like he has to be at work covertly here.
0: I will say he gets his whole arm bitten off. Mm. And this is this movie is rated PG, PG. like because it's it's not the PG thirteen is maybe doesn't even exist yet. And yeah, like, that strikes me as one of those classic when you're a kid. Like oh. I can't believe I just saw that moment. Yeah. Oh,
2: I think the the crocodiles are probably sixty five percent of the reason I loved this movie when right. I was <laughs> right. a kid. And of course, it's it's like this is another reference point for it. Right? Is the the Bond? Which Bond is it? Uh, live and Let Die that has yeah. him jumping on the. The crocodiles. So just that the yes, crocodiles yes. or the alligators, whatever they are, are planted early on. You know, some, somebody's yeah. hand is going at some point. And as a kid, you're just waiting for that moment.
1: It is a wild thing. It is right. It's weirdly violent. It's weirdly sexual. For a movie that it doesn't necessarily warrant an R. it would be a PG-13. But you're used to these movies being a little more chaste and I think a little more uh, heightened and a little more hermetic and stylized. As much as Zemeckis has that zip, I think he really keeps his eye on the ball with these two characters remaining flawed human beings and not movie archetypes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I mean, th- th- this is, you know, they, they have their meet cute, which is two vehicles crashing into one another after she gets shot at a bunch of times. And then the deal is set. And like talking about him being a little pathetic, I love how quickly he comes down in the negotiation. Like him finally settling for what is it, $275 in travelers, checks? And travelers 375, checks? $375. 375 right? five, yes.
3: Yeah. yeah. Right. He yeah. doesn't take a lady to a phone booth for less than $500. Well, <laughs> and you were, Josh, you were talking about the moments that deflate him as a, as a man or as this kind of masculine archetype. I mean, how about the fact that they meet? Because the bus hits his vehicle and it's carrying birds. I mean, it's just like, like, he's a bird smuggler. He's into birds. It's pretty pathetic. It's not as if he's out there, like, you know, living off the land and he's, you know, he's, it's, He's trying to he's trying to get by and he's got a really stupid scheme to try to to try to
0: survive, basically. He has figured out that people pay too much money for certain birds. Right. Well,
2: and that's where she starts to fall for him is when he shows that he's actually kind of interested in these birds. right? Right. He's he's describing the differences in the birds and he's showing like. Um, I, I guess you could see that as being unmanly, right? A man would just grab the bird from the sky and shove it in his pocket. He wouldn't <laughs> care what kind of bird it is. But here's this guy trying to explain the differences between different birds. And, and that's where she starts to to open up to the possibility.
1: There, there's a lighter touch with him. And not to repeat myself, but it, it's it's also that... He is unfulfilled. I think in that moment when he explains to her that this isn't what he set out to do in life, it's what he landed at. But as a byproduct of this dream of living some grander life, finding some sort of adventure for himself, that's the moment she immediately relates to. It's Mm -hmm. like I literally traffic in fantasy. I sit down and write the types of scenarios that you tried to live. I get that sense of disappointment with where you ended up, even if your life is more exciting than mine right now. But it just, it's so nice that it doesn't, like, I feel like I've talked about, especially in comedies, with, like, popular, you know, mainstream entertainment films, I feel like so often their success or failure um, is defined by how well they... Are able to pace themselves and not feel like you're stalling because any movie really the conflict there's a way the conflict could be resolved in 10 minutes right like every movie has to create obstructions preventing its characters from getting to the end of the movie too early. And I think when those things are done artfully, that's when films are really engaging, when you actually buy into the stakes and it doesn't feel like, God, come on, she would never make that decision. What are the odds of that happening on this day? And and to the, that point, it's like you understand the amount of space they have to traverse. You understand the struggles. Uh, but the bigger thing is they move through the stages of their relationship and their courtship so quickly because it's like negotiation. Then it's the mudslide. That's sort of their low point, literally down at the bottom of a mudslide, him between her legs being crass. Then like there's a little more fighting. And then within 10 minutes, they're in the plane getting vulnerable with each other. I mean, it happens within 20 minutes of them meeting the scene where they start to bond. You know, Mm -hmm. they sleep together 10 minutes after that. I mean, it, it helps that as they're trekking through the steps that you can follow of who's after them, where do they need to get, what do they need to locate their relationship is moving very linearly and logically and isn't stalling at all.
3: Yeah. And for the most part, too, other than that scene in the the fuselage of the plane or whatever, they it's in their actions. It's in it's in the moments, the the way they the way they look at each other. Sometimes it's the way, you know, someone says something that makes the the other person react a certain way. But it's not like they're having these deep conversations. It's it's all in their behavior. It's
1: behavioral. Yeah. Yeah, which is just good writing, and you have two great movie stars who are up to that task. Right, and now this is the point where you have, like, everyone kind of circling in on them. I mean, I guess the the character, I'm forgetting his name now, but the one who's such a big fan of hers, that's really, like, the the midpoint of the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Juan, uh, Alfonso Roró. That, that's a... That joke works on me so it well, really even works. though it's yeah. so oh, it's great. just it, like I read you those stories at nighttime, and everyone's like what? Well, <laughs> yeah. Like you know, like, it's just so <laughs>
1: ridiculous. It's also it's a thing I think the Vinal gets really wrong is they make it that she's like a humongous author, that she's like world renowned, that people are constantly recognizing her from her books. Mm. And the beauty of that joke is that. Like, you get at the beginning in the Holland Taylor conversation, she's successful. People want her books. They sell well. But Mm -hmm. no one else, the rest of the movie knows her by name. No one else presents themselves as a fan. And at that point, you're so far past thinking about her career that the idea that one guy is, like, fanatical— about her work and it happens to be this guy right when she's on the other end of a barrel of a gun you know like at the right moment this guy not only is such a big fan but can convey to everyone else in the town you don't know like this is joan wilder town <laughs> yeah. we live and die by joan wilder here. <laughs> right well yeah.
2: and that's also where douglas starts to take her seriously as something other yeah. than a mark right, right. so right. so it's it does that work as well as being very funny
1: Right, maybe he's not just romancing the stone because they have the stone at that point, or do they get it afterwards? No, they
0: don't. Uh, yeah, they they don't think get they have it right that. after. This yeah. is that's when they're still looking to for a vehicle, like you know, yeah, to right. get to mm-hmm. the stone. But I, it's right. also, I mean, this was not an expensive. What it had a budget of ten million dollars. Like this is not like being told on the epic scale of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I that I appreciate that simplicity too. Like there's not a lot of puzzles for them here. Like they're not being led. On some merry treasure hunt where they have to, you know, figure out six different things. Like, you no. know, they find the stone. They get these. there by accident. Yeah, they, they, yeah. right. They're, they, they're, I mean, they're the movie chumps is and very I, economical. Yeah. It's like, oh, there's that thing right.
3: on the map. I guess we're here. But, <laughs> right. No, that's a
1: good point, David. It has to be because they're chumps. Like if, if they yeah. had to do too much puzzle solving, you would it would strain credibility you'd be like why are they suddenly so good at this <laughs> yep <laughs> you're right neither of them are made for this and and truly the major conflict of the movie remains she took a bus several hours in the wrong direction the real conflict of this movie is that she should have been able to get from the airport to her sister in under an hour and she went too far in the other direction and now she has to undo that that's the main conflict
0: devito does basically nothing except when they get the stone snatches it from them and then five seconds later they're like get that back and that's it like that's that's it his entire arc
1: right DeVito just keeps on going like I'm getting close I'm getting close and then he finally gets them and he fucks it up within 30 seconds
0: yeah
2: and like rolls down a hill and it's great it's so good another great bit is when he's left behind on the boat you know for for no reason at the very end yeah soon
1: I'll come back very soon (laughs) so good the 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 moment for me that just killed me is the the bit the physical bit and Zamekis is such like He's got that childish like love of like slapstick comedy and everything. He knows just to like let these things play out in master shots that he doesn't cut the coverage too much. He lets like these multiple actors in this incredible terrain behave in real time in real unbroken takes. But that bit where DeVito's on the phone and he notices the wanted poster. Yeah. yeah. And he's trying to pull the poster down. And it's like <laughs> DeVito is has always been so smart at knowing his size and knowing how much funnier certain things are because of his relation to everything else around him. Mm -hmm. Objects and space and time and other people. Like any two shot with Danny DeVito is funny because it's not how any other two shot with two adults is framed. But (laughs) that bit where it's just like he's on the phone he's keeping up his angry energy. It's like classic Louis De Palma stuff and then he's trying to figure out like how to get up onto the chair, how to switch over to the side, how to jump onto the counter and then when he just does that perfect fall where like his feet go above his head and he falls out of frame it's just it, he's he's inherently funny yeah. it's not just that he looks like Danny DeVito it's that he's a very skilled actor and he understands how to use mm-hmm. being Danny DeVito as like an instrument and yep. and i i was watching i mean all these interviews with him where he was like so many of the moments that people told me were funny like i didn't even realize like the thing you were saying josh about uh him running away from the car shooting behind him Mm -hmm. he was like i was trying to play that as straight as possible i just wasn't (laughs) thinking about the fact that it would look funny because i'm the one
2: doing it well and why does it look funny to your point griffin is because zemeckis shoots it in like wide shot so we see we see the space all around him like there's not really an immediate threat (laughs) yet he's still firing over his head in desperation
1: it's it's so funny uh it, it, talking about how much they like america just had devito fever at the time the trailer for this movie is devito in an apartment calling ira saying like i got a real big case there's this is stone you see <laughs> and the whole trailer is footage shot just for the trailer of devito <laughs> oh. in a set they constructed just He's for a the great trailer
0: man wow. narrating
1: right and it like like going like there's this guy you see and this woman real sad like he's like listing all the things the trailer is like 60 seconds and he's like can't talk gotta leave right now he hangs up the phone he looks at the camera and he says and I'm taking you with me oh, and he no. like points at the audience <laughs> oh, and it no. just says romancing the stone and the movie was a huge hit yeah like hey, the worked. trailer. Of course it's a good trailer it's just all DeVito guess what trailer for Jewel of the Nile exactly the same Trailer yeah, for jewel sure. denial him walking up to a phone booth going hey ira i got a whole new case this time it's even bigger than that stone
2: hey if it ain't broke don't fix it and it's, it's a jewel. unbelievable
1: it, but in relation <laughs> to david as you said he he's a threat at a distance shows up steals the stone for them they're like no you're little we're taking it back and he's pretty right. much gone
0: yeah yeah but isn't it like la confidential a favorite movie of mine like that movie begins with with danny devito going like so here's the deal la like the big city they're building highways like he's laying out like danny devito being used as a a narrator or an entree to a story is an underrated cinematic device that should be revived i
1: i feel like Ten years ago, or maybe even more, he announced he was going to star in and direct a movie about Crazy Eddie. The, like, blowout discount electronics guy who was the first. Yeah, of course. Like, Like, "Ah, they think I'm insane. I'm giving these things away. And it's like, that's exactly what I want to see. That's the exact (laughs) movie
0: I want in the world.
1: Is DeVito to camera just screaming about toaster ovens?
0: (laughs) All right, uh, unless there's anything else we should, we should play the box office game. Uh, it's a good box office game, I will say. I mean, we, we um, sort of
1: talked about this. We we got there earlier talking about this stuff out of order, but yeah, the, uh, once they get the stone, you pretty quickly get to that sort of final showdown where everyone comes into place at once, the standoff with the crocodiles, which is such a good like new physical threat for them. And the calculation of him... In the moment, it's seeming like he's doing the selfless thing. He's proving that he's not actually a scumbag because he would rather lose the stone and save her life than give it to these guys. But in fact, you get, he knows exactly what he's doing. That uh, crocodile's not going to be able to digest the stone. He'll get it back. He'll like surround this guy as he does. And, uh, you know, he thinks he can leave her and that she's,
2: you I read know, that, okay I read that as a more as a more noble choice, actually. I, I think mean, it's I, both. Yeah. I think it's both. I do. I mean, you think I mean, it it's was hundred percent sincere? Yeah, I mean, because they show that the the crocodile is like jumping into the bay, you know. The the implication to me is it's free. It's wild. They, it escaped its its enclosure.
3: Yeah, but they do keep cutting back to the crocodile always to let us know that he's keeping an eye on it. Like he's always watching it. Right. And also, we know this guy loves boats. Like, that's the other thing.
0: He's boat crazy. He's boat crazy. He's so crazy about boats, he drives one down a New York City street at the end of the movie. But I mean, just for a second,
3: though, I mean, was anyone else struck by uh, the absurdity again of a crocodile is in the bay and he just jumps in? He's yeah. like, I'm just getting in the water. Yeah,
0: right, right.
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's, I mean, that's the Indiana <laughs> Jones move, right? That's that's right. the, like, no matter how insane this situation, I've right. got it covered. I
3: mean, I don't know. I'd come up with a plan, but I'm not just jumping in. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, it
2: just ate a
1: person's hand.
0: Like, this is not a chill
3: right. crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that that's the Douglas thing, though,
1: of just, like, whether or not it's strategic at that point in time or an idea he comes to later, I do like that he recognizes i'm not a moron i'm not gonna go after the crocodile now wait for the crocodile to poop you know <laughs> like you can't you can't stick your hand on a crocodile's throat it's a bad idea no you can um can't. but the end of this movie i just think is so genuinely sweet i mean it, they get there pretty fast but like goes back to new york she has achieved the height of success which is of course being catcalled on the street by random strangers. Now she's finally gotten her life in balance. Well, People are wolf whistling at her.
3: But also it's it's that before she's like totally surrounded. She can't get she can't get by one person and assert herself. Right. Sure. And at the end yes. she's in complete control. It's the assertion. Yes, that is very yes. true. Yeah.
1: Yes. And she's very comfortable in her own skin and all of that. She, you know, she's figured out a new book. She's got new inspiration in her life. Uh, but Douglas showing up with the boat just like totally disarmed me. Uh, I I just think it's so uh, it's there's something so the, the, visually the, the striking about boots.
0: it. Yes, the yes, yes. boots are good. And the boots, a very nice touch.
1: But there's something so like romantic in, in sort of a fairy tale way about mm-hmm. that final shot of just like what is it, Madison Avenue, with the boat
3: just driving down it off into the distance. Absolutely, why not? I mean, everything everything has happened the way it should in terms of the arc of Joan Wilder. But that she gets the payoff too at the end. She finally yes. gets to live out the fantasy. They both get fulfillment, right? I mean, that's 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 what Hollywood endings are made of.
0: Uh I'm just I'm we, just seeing go ahead, Griffin. Sorry. No, I just wanted just to, to note it. I wanted to note that they considered remaking this with Katherine Heigel and Taylor Kitsch. Thank you. Or Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler, Thank I saw you. that. Right. That's oh the big God. one.
1: That's like... Yeah, the, the, after it, Ugly right.
0: Truth, they were like, we got to just throw you guys into a Romancing the Stone remake.
1: Because David has contended before on this podcast that Catherine Heigl and Gerard Butler, together and separately, might have killed the romantic comedy in America. Like, they're right. maybe the two people you could put the yeah. blame at. And the idea of just like a 2008, 2009 Romancing the Stones reboot with the two of them just sounds like the absolute worst idea and misunderstanding of what works in this movie uh if i could just do two other things very quickly before we get to the box office game david uh one tiny merchandise spotlight that i just found kind of charming they released novelizations of both of these movies um which most movies in the 80s got novelizations even the ones you imagine would not have gotten novelizations they had both of them credited to joan wilder which i think is cool (laughs) nice (laughs) Mm. Yeah, that is clever, right? Yes, I like that. And I believe they tried to write them sort of in the style of the types yeah, of books that right. she would have written. That's But cool. the same plots. Um, the second one, uh, despite being sort of so rushed, uh, I mean, they, you know, came out the next year. Zemeckis, talk about a sliding door scenario. You have to imagine there's a part of him or a part of, of most filmmakers who would be tempted by the prospect of, it's a go picture, you just made a hit, Fox wants a sequel, the stars are back. It's an easy paycheck to just come back for the second one. And instead, he goes off and makes back to the future, which was an incredibly wise decision.
2: Um, yeah. but well, the it goes second back one, to what you said at the start. You know, if he was – the, the end game was back to the future – Always. This positioned him to do it. So it was right. kind, yeah. you know, kind of you know a right. no-brainer. But he couldn't he, even he be... Took
0: it, he took the gig, yes. No, he did not he take couldn't the be easy tempted. money. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: I feel like a lot of people get laid sure. uh, sort of uh, astray if they have one hit like this. They start to question, well, but should I make a strategic move versus... Right, um, which he didn't do. Uh, and Jewel of the Nile ended up av- actually making more than uh, Romancing the Stone. Sure. It was a-, a slightly bigger hit. But they never made the third one largely because it just feels like it killed enthusiasm for it. It's that rare case of uh, in the past, if it didn't feel like the desire was there, studios would not cram a fifth entry down audiences' throats. They would just sort of throw their hands up. At one point, I think in the early 2000s or the late 90s, they it almost made did a slightly third one. less.
0: I just want to correct you. It okay, made slightly I'm less. I'm sorry. Yeah. But it made but just it about the same amount. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, in the late. 90s, they almost did a third movie that was the two of them and their kids. And then, in the early 2000s, there was a rumor that Douglas wanted to do a third one, but with Catherine Zeta-Jones instead of uh right Mm. bad idea bad idea idea. right so like very happy (laughs) neither of those happened very happy the Catherine heigl gerard butler one didn't happen but i was like i it's still kind of curious they wouldn't push the third one up a hill and then i read some of the anecdotes about the making of jewel of the nile if i could just speed run through these okay so immediately they're like bring back diane thomas diane thomas has gotten an overall deal at amblin uh douglas says we can't afford her Uh, uh, Kathleen Turner resents the fact that they don't get Diane Thomas so Kathleen Turner tries to quit the movie when they deliver the script that was written by two other guys Fox then threatens to sue Kathleen Turner for 25 million dollars Douglas intercepts and is like please 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 I'll stop her from quitting don't sue her drop the suit goes to diane thomas says can you please come on and like take a pass at the script i need you to fix this just two weeks whatever you can do so she comes on and works the script for two weeks he's like we can't pay you your quote so as a reward he buys her the newest top of the line porsche that porsche is what she dies in yeah. several months later yeah. like curse Thank number God. one okay then curse number two uh Where is this here? Approximately two weeks before principal photography began, an aircraft-carrying Richard Dawking, production designer, and Brian Coates, production manager, crashed during location scouting over the countryside of Morocco, killing all on board. So you have three key creative people who die right before the movie right i think she dies a month before it comes out but she had a much younger boyfriend who was a professional stunt driver diane thomas and he wanted to show off in the car that michael douglas had bought her for rewriting this movie and that's how she died and then there's this story here let me just find this um do 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 uh i can't find this anecdote here but um oh here we go uh Filming in North Africa was dogged with problems from unbearable 100 degree Fahrenheit heat to problems with the local crew. But the most troubling concern was that the director, Louis Teague, who after this goes on to make Collision Course, the Jay Leno Pat Morita buddy comedy mm-hmm. that essentially kills his career and has just worked in TV for the rest of his life after that, showed that he was not up to the task of helming an action film. After one massive night scene that was hours in setup, Cast and crew in place, it was only then that someone noticed that there was no film in the cameras. (laughs) As producer, Michael Douglas exploded. The whole debacle (laughs) had to be refilmed another day only after the raw stock was finally located. Uh, Equipment was being held up by customs, bribes were paid to local government. I completely understand why they didn't make another one after that
0: <laughs> yeah they were probably just like forget it it's cursed this is
1: a bad yeah, idea and, and
0: also douglas is such a big star at that point at that point he
1: doesn't want to do it he's like this is a young man's game and all three of them like proceed to have huge uh decades like the latter half of the 80s for turner devito and douglas are all three humongous
0: okay guys we're playing the box office game we're playing gonna the box office gonna- game we're going to guess the movies that came out the weekend this movie came out, which is March 30th, 1984. This movie opened at number four. So it was sort of like a long, big, sleepery kind of movie. Like it wasn't a movie that opened big and, you know. Um, and this, it, yeah, this played, is March 8th. It played for September. Jewel Nile. It's March. Yeah. Is,
1: Jewel Denial's December, December 85.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 So quick. All right. Okay. Number, number four, one at the box office. March number one is at the box a zone. the it's a comedy it's the start of a franchise is a police academy it is it's well police done academy. nice you guys you guys see police academy in theaters you yeah, have Police oh, yes. academy yeah watched it constantly yeah i Another think that was a vhs of those, for me right 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 um yeah police academy it's second week i don't know what's it gonna go on to make it made 80 million bucks i mean it was a huge hit Right? Like, you know, probably yeah, humongous. in the top five of that year, right? Oh, yeah. Humongous.
1: Uh, definitely in the top five. I just found out uh, recently that the Naked Gun movies were only called the Naked Gun because of Police Academy. Because they were adapting or continuing the Police Squad TV show. And they didn't want to use the title Police Squad because they were like, Police Academy just has that shit on lock. We can't <laughs> right. be a different comedy with police
0: in the title. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> right uh all right number two is a adventure film funny that it's opening the same week as this more of a prestige adventure movie got an Oscar mm-hmm. nomination Greystoke Legend of uh, Tarzan yes Jesus oh wow, man <laughs> and
3: we're we're the ones doing an eight from
0: 84 series on our show this year <laughs> yeah. and wow. we're, we're dying here Better I have to have never that up Adam yeah I have never seen Greystoke Colon the Legend of Tarzan, comma Lord of the Apes. Have you guys seen this film with Christopher? No, Landers I remember it being on. I remember never being intrigued enough to keep watching. Mm-hmm. It uh, it has that Ralph Richardson. That's sort of like you know the kind of Scionara final final, yeah. right, final right final role Oscar nomination. That's it's what a I know big it best Rick for.
1: Baker breakthrough. And then the other big thing I feel like that's known about that movie is I think Christopher Lambert couldn't speak English at all. That's one of those movies where you have like a lead right. actor who's acting phonetically. And uh, Annie McDowell, they hated her Southern accent so much that Glenn Close dubbed over all of her dialogue.
0: Really? Very strange. Yeah. Uh, All right. Number three. It's another comedy. I'm going to give you very little because you're getting these fast. Um, I'm on fire tonight. Big Star, but on his way to stardom. Still, sort of a juvenile, you know, still like a young comedy star. But he's going to be okay. So he's Beverly Hills. But Cop. It's not Beverly Hills Cop, though. Not That's Beverly later. Hills Cop. That's December. No, no. It's not. I just right. wanted That's to guess December. something before yeah. Griffin's fair yeah, and the answer, right?
1: And Ghostbusters is June. So those are like yeah. the two huge comedies of this year. Police Academy's right. already big. off the board. Okay, but um, juvenile? Just, is he young? We, is it a young? No, star? no,
0: he's no, he's probably in his early twenties or whatever. Maybe a little older than that. Yeah, he's uh he's probably close to. He's late twenties. It's not an um, SNL guy. No, although he certainly has been on SNL many times. Oh, he's certainly been
1: on SNL uh, many Splash. times.
0: Splash. It's Splash. There you go. Ron well Howard, done. Splash. There we go. There we Gans go. Gans and Mandel. I will uh, sleep That's a movie well I have seen so <laughs> many times. Uh, another VHS type. I don't know. Or whatever. It was just on yeah, cable that, all the time. Yes.
1: That's one I saw like probably. Eight times
0: between the ages of five and ten and have not seen since. Um yeah, I haven't seen it in years. Uh Romancing Stone Number Four. So number five, it's a teen movie. It was invoked on this podcast tonight. Uh hmm. it's been out for two months. It's a huge Footloose? hit. Footloose. A lot of, a lot great of weekend hits. for
1: on-screen dancing
0: yeah <laughs> or not it kind <laughs> of like mine? those are five pretty well-known movies it drops off after yeah. that you got against all odds tank the ice mm. pirates children of the corn oh, racing ice with pirates. the moon you wow. know now we're in like sort of somewhat more forgotten mid-80s territory i don't know i like yeah. that bottom five david there's some <laughs> yeah, in that bottom it's, five. it's fun <laughs> it's a fun bottom five um but Reason yeah with the, the moon's top... kind
1: of an underrated movie i feel like that never gets discussed that's a sweet movie
0: I've never seen it no I haven't either I Tell watched it, uh, it
1: I trying to watch every single Nicolas Cage movie but that's mm. like coming right. of age Sean Penn's kid from wrong side of the Str- tracks Elizabeth McGovern like really running hot after uh ordinary people and then Cage plays like Penn's like wild loose cannon friend sure
0: yeah it, of course it looks yeah. pretty cute yeah and it's like set in it's the good. 40s yeah yeah. It's a nice little sure. movie uh yeah so that's it we're done um we did it congratulations to everyone we discussed the film romancing the stone yes we wow, did. thank you, know, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank the, you guys the
1: last for hire zemeckis movie and then after that he's like robert zemeckis you know he's like, writing his, his own like, checks
0: after this yeah right. mm-hmm. this
1: one is oh wow back to the future who's this kid and after back to the future it's like you own this town
0: you will own it yeah. forever here are the keys yeah. Yep. Yeah. As he should. Yeah. It, it, it is a crazy switch flip, considering that Back to the Future is coming. Like yeah. the yeah, yeah, that this is yeah, this is the one.
1: And once again, that Back to the Future. Like I didn't realize how close together these two movies were. Like this is March. It it is an immediate hit. It does well, but it is somewhat. No, but of a yeah, sleeper. Back to the Future is July '85. Yep. Right. Back to the Future is yep. right. yep. 14 months later or whatever. Um. It's it's pretty well. But but he was. Ready. I mean he knew that movie and as you said, Josh, he that was the goal. Like everything was working towards getting to make that one. And he yeah. will talk about it probably for too long next week. Josh, <laughs> Adam, boy. thank you so much for being thank you. on the show. Um, thanks a lot, such, guys. Such a blast big fan and longtime listener. And I mean You're legends. Adam, Along with our buddy JD at a film That's spotting right. meetup in New York like five or six years ago. Five or six years ago. Yeah. Uh, and we had kept in touch vaguely since then. And then you very kindly asked me to be on the um, uh, Toy Story the Toy episode Story. when Josh was unavailable. Uh, that was unavailable. a great show.
3: That was fun. Um, but, it was a great show. Uh,
1: it, it, it truly is uh, an honor because I, I feel like yeah, you two guys are two of the, the, the legends of the film podcasting space, and I was listening to your show for years before we had our own show, and, and uh, in it, it feels like a validation to have things come full circle and have you guys come on and uh, legitimize our, our the honor stupid, is, stupid
3: show. The honor yeah. is all ours, guys. Little hyperbole, but we'll take it. Yep. yep. Um,
1: so you guys, now that movies are starting to come back into theaters, uh, you're reviewing new releases, which is usually the bread and butter of your show, but most of the summer you've been doing... Uh, A lot of sort of miniseries, director miniseries or genres or years or careers Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But but is the plan going forward back to new releases or do you have more sort of marathons coming up that you want to tease?
3: Yeah, we've actually we've been talking about this recently, and I think we're we're going to try to get back to a consistent schedule of doing two marathons per year, which is where, you know, we talk about five to seven movies. Uh, you know, by a certain actor or a certain director, or maybe of a certain genre that these are usually blind spots for us. And so we're two films into an overlooked of tours marathon right now. That is all about female directors. So we started with uh, Maya Darren and her experimental stuff and uh, Ida Lupino and the hitchhiker. And then, Last week on the show, we talked about Daisy's um, The Czech New Wave, you know, really pioneering film. We have Jean Dielman ahead so that uh, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that and, and we'll do that and we'll do a couple of those, like I said. And then I think this new series we started that, that kind of taking a page from your book, actually, what we are calling based on a listener suggestion our oeuvre reviews. Um, Going to take a look at a filmography of a director. And Nolan was our first choice because it was a perfect setup to as you said, Griffin, have some movies to talk about uh, during this time, getting ready for Tenet. And so we watched all of his films in order and talked about him. And then we got to cap that off with Tenet. But we we don't know who's next, but we're going to try to do at least one of those a year as well. So
1: uh, awesome. Well, everyone should listen. If you don't already listen to film spotting, I don't know why. And, and you have your Patreon as well. Uh, the film spotting family,
3: which I'm me- a member of Yes, and, and, and I'm I'm a I'm a, family, I'm a member of uh, the blank check family uh, as well on Patreon, and I'll just say that uh, our our page would not be as meagerly successful as it is, certainly relative to yours, if it wasn't for uh, your advice and uh, taking the time to to talk to me about that and what made you guys successful. So um, I appreciate everything you did for us there.
1: That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate the plug because I'm trying to set up a shadow career as a uh, Patreon whisperer. You can be a consultant. A high paid Patreon consultant is my new Because uh, uh, it a doesn't cut. look like I'm ever going to be on set ever again. Um, anyway, thank you all for being on the show. Uh, and thank you all for thank listening. You. And Thanks, tune guys. in next week for Back to the Future, uh, what will definitely be a very, very normal, low key. Episode. Um, please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Go to blank check, uh, or rather blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. Uh, you can go to our new Shopify with uh, merchandise. Uh, I think the comedy points have sold out, but we'll be refreshing stuff uh, often. So if something you want to see is out of stock, uh, let us know on social media. We'll bring it back. And also, if you have requests of other things you'd like to see us selling soon, uh, we're always open to those sorts of suggestions. Uh, go to patreon.com backslash, blank check. Where I think we will now uh, be on the Alien films, right? The Alien franchise.
0: Uh, that's right. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Slithering can, around.
0: Yeah, just... um, multiple mouths. mouths. That's that's true. That that is a, a feature in the Alien films. Uh, multiple mouths. Yeah, we're 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 just gearing up to that, basically.
1: Uh, so that's a thing to look forward to. Yep. And. As always, Michael Douglas is too horny on me.
3: (laughs) Very good.